Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Section 4 of The Golden Bell. Part 1. The Magic Art and the Evolution of Kings. Volume 2. By James Fraser. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information on the volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 10. Relics of Tree Worship in Modern Europe. May Trees in Europe. From the foregoing review of the beneficial qualities commonly ascribed to tree spirits, it is easy to understand why customs like the May Tree or the Maypole have prevailed so widely and figured so prominently in the popular festivals of European peasants. In spring or early summer, or even on midsummer day, it was and still is in many parts of Europe the custom to go out to the woods, cut down a tree, and bring it into the village where it is set up amid general rejoices, or the people cut branches in the woods and fasten them on every house. The intention of these customs is to bring home to the village and to each house the blessings which the tree spirit has in its power to bestow, hence the custom in some places of planting a may tree before every house or of carrying the village may tree from door to door that every household may receive its share of the blessing. Out of the mass of evidence on the subject, a few examples may be selected. May Trees and May Bushes in England Sir Henry Piers, in his description of Westmeath, writing in 1682, says, On May Eve, every family sets up before their door a green bush, strewed over with yellow flowers, which the meadows yield plentifully. In countries where timber is plentiful, they erect tall centre trees which stand high and they continue almost the whole year, so as a stranger would go nigh to imagine that they were all signs of ale-sellers and that all houses were ale-houses. In Northamptonshire, a young tree ten or twelve feet high used to be planted before each house on May Day so as to appear growing. Flowers were thrown over it and strewn about the door. Among ancient customs still retained by the Cornish may be reckoned that of decking their doors and porches on the 1st of May with green boughs of sycamore and hawthorn, and of planting trees or other stumps of trees before their houses. May Garlands in England In the north of England it was formerly the custom for young people to rise little after midnight on the morning of the 1st of May, and go out with music and the blowing of horns into the woods, where they broke branches and adorned them with nosegays and crowns of flowers. This done, they returned about sunrise and fastened the flower-decked branches over the doors and windows of their houses. At Abingdon, in Berkshire, young people formerly went about in groups on May morning, singing a carol of which the following are two of the verses. We have been rambling all the night, and some time of this day. Now returning back again, we bring a garland gay. A garland gay we bring you here, and at your door we stand. Here's a sprout well budded out, the work of our Lord's hand. At the towns of Saffron Walden and Debden in Essex, on the 1st of May, little girls go about in parties from door to door, singing a song almost identical with the above and carrying garlands. A doll dressed in white is usually placed in the middle of each garland. Similar customs have been, and indeed are still observed in various parts of England. 
The garlands are generally in the form of hoops intersecting each other at right angles. Thus on May morning the girls of the neighbouring villages used to flock into Northampton bringing their garlands, which they exhibited from house to house. The skeleton of the garland was formed of two hoops of osier or hazel crossing each other at right angles, and so twinned with flowers and ribbons that no part of them could be seen. In the centre of the garlands were placed gaily dressed dolls, one, two or three in number according to the size of the garland. The whole was fixed to a staff about five feet long by which it was carried. In showing their garlands, the children chanted some simple ditties and received in return pennies, which furnished forth a feast on their return to their homes. A merry dance round the garland concluded the festivity. At Erto Exeter, groups of children carried garlands of flowers about the town on May Day. The garlands consist of two hoops, one passing through the other, which give the appearance of four half-circles, and they are decorated with flowers and evergreens, and surmounted with a bunch of flowers as a sort of crown, and in the centre of the hoops is a pendant orange and flowers. One or more of the children carry a little pole or stick upright with a bunch of flowers fastened to the top. They are themselves decorated with flowers and ribbons, and receive pence from the house which they visit. At Watford and Hertfordshire, groups of children, almost entirely girls, go about the streets from door to door on May Day, singing some verses, of which two agree almost verbally with those which, as we have seen, are sung at Abingdon and Berkshire. They are dressed in white and adorned with grey ribbons and sashes of many hues. Two of the girls carry between them, on a stick, what they call the garland, which in its simplest form is made of two circular hoops intersecting each other at right angles. A more elaborate form has, in addition, smaller semicircles inserted in the four angles formed by the meeting of the hoops at the top of the garland. These hoops are covered with any wildflowers in season and are further ornamented with ribbons. The garland in shape reminds me of the Christmas, which used to form the centre of the Christmas decorations at Yorkshire some few years ago, except the latter had a bunch of mistletoe inside the hoops. A similar custom was observed at Bampton or in the bush in Oxfordshire, down to about the middle of the 19th century. The garland consists of two crossed hoops, covered with moss, flowers and ribbons. Two girls, known as a lady and her maid, bore the garland between them on a stick, and a boy called the lord, who carried a stick dressed with ribbons and flowers, collected contributions from the spectators. From time to time the lady sang a few lines, and was then kissed by the lord. At Seven Oaks in Kent, the children carry boughs and garlands from door to door on May Day. The boughs consist of six carried upright with bunches of leaves and wildflowers fastened to the top. The garlands are formed of two hoops interlaced crosswise and covered with blue and yellow flowers from the wooden hedges. Sometimes the garlands are fastened to the end of the stick, carried perpendicularly. Sometimes they hang from the middle of the stick, borne horizontally by two children. In the streets of Cambridge, Little girls regularly make their appearance every May Day with female dolls enclosed in hoops, which are covered with ribbons and flowers. These they show to passers-by, inviting them to remember the May Lady by paying a small sum to her bearers. At Salisbury, girls go through the streets on May Day in pairs, carrying between them on a stick a circular garland or hoop adorned with flowers and bows. They visit the shops, asking for money. A similar custom is observed at Wilton, a few miles from Salisbury. At Cawthorn in Yorkshire, on the 1st of May, the school children came with hoops to beg for artificial flowers. These my mother's maid used to sew on to the hoops, which with ribbons and other decorations were used in decking out a tall maypole planted in the village. It appears that a hoop wreathed with rowan and marsh marigold, 
and bearing suspended within it two balls is still carried on May Day by villagers in some parts of Ireland. The balls, which are sometimes covered with gold and silver paper, are said to have originally represented the sun and moon. May Customs in France, Germany and Greece in some villages of the Vosgos Mountains, on the first Sunday of May, young girls go in bands from house to house, singing a song in praise of May, in which mention is made of the bread and meal that come in May. If money is given them, they fasten a green bough to the door. If it is refused, they wish the family many children and no bread to feed them. In the French department of Mayenne, boys who bore the name of Melotonins used to go about from farm to farm on the 1st of May, singing carols, for which they received money or a drink. They plant a small tree or a branch of a tree among the Germans of Moravia on the third Sunday before Easter, which goes by the name of Leiter Sunday. It is customary in some places for young girls to carry a small fir tree from door to door while they sing songs, for which they receive presents. The tree is tricked out with many coloured ribbons and sometimes with flowers and dyed eggshells, and its branches are twined together so as to form what is called a crown. In Corfu, the children go about singing May songs on the 1st of May. The boys carry small cypresses adorned with ribbons, flowers, and the fruits of the season. They receive a glass of wine at each house. The girls carry nosegays. One of them is dressed up like an angel with gilt wings and scatters flowers. With Suntide Customs in Russia on the Thursday before Wet Sunday, the Russian villagers go out into the woods, sing songs, weave garlands, and cut down a young birch tree, which they dress up in woman's clothes or adorn with many coloured shreds and ribbons. After that comes a feast, at the end of which they take the dressed-up birch tree, carry it home to their village with joyful dance and song, and set it up with one of the houses, where it remains as an honoured guest till Wet Sunday. On the two intervening days, they pay visits to the house where their guest is, but on the third day, with Sunday, they take her to a stream and fling her into its waters, throwing their garlands after her. All over Russia, every village and every town is turned, a little before with Sunday, into a sort of garden. Everywhere, along the streets, young birch trees stand in rows. Every house and every room is adorned with boughs. Even the engines upon the railway are, for the time, decked with green leaves. In this Russian custom, the dressing of the birch in women's clothes shows how clearly the tree is personified, and the throwing it into a stream is most probably a rain charm. In some villages of Altmark, it was formerly the custom for serving men, grooms, and cowherds to go from farm to farm at white suntide, distributing crowns made of birch branches and flowers to the farmers. These crowns are hung up in the houses and left to the following year. May Trees in Germany and Sweden in the neighbourhood of Zabern, in Alsace, bands of people go about carrying may trees. Amongst them is a man dressed in a white shirt, and his face blackened. In front of him is carried a large may tree, but each member of the band also carries a smaller one. One of the company bears a huge basket in which he collects eggs, bacon, and so forth. In some parts of Sweden, on the eve of May Day, leads go about carrying each a branch of fresh gathered birch twigs, wholly or partially in a leaf. With a village fiddler at their head, they make the round of the houses singing May songs. The burden of their songs is a prayer for fine weather, a plentiful harvest, and worldly and spiritual blessings. One of them carries a basket on which he collects gifts of eggs and the like. If they are well received, they stick a leafy twig in the roof over the cottage door.
Midsummer Trees in Poles in Sweden But in Sweden, midsummer is the season when these ceremonies are chiefly observed. On the eve of St. John, the 23rd of June, the houses are thoroughly cleansed and garnished with green boughs and flowers. Young fir trees are raised at the doorway and elsewhere about the homestead, and very often small, umbrageous arbors are constructed in the garden. In Stockholm on this day, a leaf mark is held at which thousands of maypoles, majstanger, from 6 inches to 12 feet high, decorated with leaves, flowers, sips of colored paper, gilt, eggshells, strung on reeds, and so on, are exposed for sale. Bonfires are lit on the hills, and the people dance around them and jump over them. But the chief event of the day is setting up the maypole. This consists of a straight and dull spruce pine tree, stripped of its branches, at times hoops, and at others pieces of wood, placed crosswise, are attached to it at intervals. Well said others, it is provided with bows, representing, so as to say, a man with his arms akimbo. From top to bottom, not only the majstang, maypole itself, but the hoops, bows, etc., are ornamented with leaves, flowers, slips of various cloth, gilt, eggshells, etc., and on top of it is a large vein, or it may be a flag. The raising of the maypole, the decoration of which is done by the village maidens, is an affair of much ceremony. The people flock to it from all quarters, and dance round it in a great ring. Midsummer customs are the same sort used to be observed in some parts of Germany. Thus in the towns of the Upper Harz Mountains, tall fir trees with the bark peeled off their lower trunks were set up in open places, and decked with flowers and eggs, which were painted yellow and red. Round these trees the young folk danced by day and the old folk in the evening. Many people disguised themselves and dramatic representations were given, amongst others, mock executions, at which the sufferer's hat was knocked off instead of his head. At the village of Lurbach, in these fur-clad mountains, children will gather together on a midsummer day, each with a tiny fir tree, which they made to revolve from left to right, in the direction of the sun, while they sang, The maiden turned herself about, or, O oh, thou dear summertime, O oh, thou dear summertime. In some parts of Bohemia, also a maypole midsummer tree is erected on St. John's Eve. The lads fetch a tall fir or pine from the wood and set it up on a height where the girls dig it with nosegays, garlands, and red ribbons. It is afterwards burned. Village Maypoles in England It would be needless to illustrate at length the custom which has prevailed in various parts of Europe, such as England, France, and Germany, of setting up a village may tree or maypole on May Day. A few examples will suffice. The puritanical writer Philip Stubbs, in his Anatomy of Abuses, first published at London in 1583, has described with manifest disgust how they used to bring in the maypole in the days of good Queen Bess. His description affords us a vivid glimpse of Merry England in the olden time. Against May, which Sunday or other time, all the young men and maidens, old men and wives, run gadding overnight to the woods, groves, hills and mountains, where they spend all the night in pleasant pastimes, and in the morning they return, bring with them birch and branches of trees to deck their assemblies with hall. And no marvel, for there is a great lord present amongst them, a superintendent and lord over the pastimes and sports, namely, Satan, Prince of Hell. But the chiefest jewel they bring from thence is their maypole, which they bring home with great veneration, adds thus. Bringing in the maypole. They have twenty or forty yoke of oxen, every ox having a sweet nosegay of flowers placed on the tip of his horns, and his oxen draw home this maypole, this stinking idol, rather, which is covered all over with flowers and herbs, bound round about with strings from the top to the bottom, and sometimes painted with variable colours, with two or three hundred men, women, and children following it in great devotion. 
and thus being reared up with handkerchiefs and flags hovering on the top they store the ground round about bind green boughs about it set up summer halls bowers and arbours hard by it and then fall they to dance about it like as the heathen people did at the dedication of the idols whereof this is a perfect pattern or rather the thing itself i have heard it credibly reported and that by vavos by men of great gravity and reputation that of forty three score or three hundred maids going to the wood overnight there have scarcely the third part of them returned home again undefiled of the cornish people their historian bourlay says from towns that make excursions on may eve into the country cut down a tall elm bring it into towns with rejoices and having fitted a straight taper pole to the end of it and painted it erected it in the most public part and upon holidays and festivals dressed with garlands of flowers or in signs and streamers in northumberland down apparently to near the end of the eighteenth century young people of both sexes used to go out early in may morning to gather the flowering thorn and dew off the grass which they brought home with music and acclamations then having dressed a bowl on the green with garlands they danced about it the dew was considered as a great cosmetic and preserved the face from wrinkles botches and the traces of old age a syllabub made of warm milk from the cow sweet cakes and wine was preferred for the feast and a kind of divination to discover who should be wedded first was practised by dropping a marriage ring into the syllabub and fishing for it with a ladle at padstow and cornwall when shipbuilding was a thriving industry of the port the shipwrights used to erect a tall maypole at the top of cross street in the middle of a cross inlaid with stone the bowl was gaily decorated with spring flowers and so forth but the custom has long been abandoned a great feature of the celebration of may day in padstow used to be the hobby horse that is a man wearing a ferocious mask who went dancing and singing before the chief houses accompanied by a great flower bedecked crowd of men and women while the men fired pistols loaded with powder in all directions village may trees and maypoles in germany in swabia on the first of may a tall fir tree used to be fetched into the village where it was decked with ribbons and set up then the people danced round and merrily to music a tree stood in the village green the whole year through until a fresh tree was brought in next day in saxony people were not content with bringing the summer symbolically as king or queen into the village they brought the fresh green itself from the woods even into the houses that is the may or its sun-tied trees which are mentioned in documents from the thirteenth century onwards the fetching in of the may tree was also a festival the people went out to the woods to seek the may majan quarrier brought young trees especially firs and birches to the village and set them up before the doors of the houses or of the cattle stalls or in the rooms young fellows erected such may trees as we have already said before the chambers of their sweethearts beside these household maize a great may tree or maypole which had also been brought in solemn procession to the village was set up in the middle of the village or in the market-place of the town it had been chosen by the whole community who watched over it most carefully generally the tree was stripped of its branches and leaves nothing but the crown being left on which were displayed in addition to many coloured ribbons and cloths a variety of victuals such as sausages cakes and eggs the young folk exerted themselves to obtain these prizes in the greedy poles which are still to be seen at our fairs we have a relic of these old maypoles maypoles and maytrees in germany and france not uncommonly there was a race on foot or on horseback to the maytree a with sun pastime in which in course of time has been divested of its goal and survives a popular custom to this day in many parts of germany 
in the great towns of our land the custom has developed into sport for our spring races are in their origin nothing but the old german horse races in which the victor received a prize generally a red cloth from the hand of a maiden while the last rider was greeted with jeers and jibes by the assembled community the custom of the may tree is observed by the winds of saxony as well as by the germans the young men of the village choose the slimmest and tallest tree in the wood peel it and set it up on the village green its leafy top is decked with cloths and ribbons presented by the girls here it stands towering high above the roofs till ascension day or in many places till with suntide when it has been taken down young folk dance round it and the youth who catches and breaks off the leafy crown of the falling tree is a hero of the day holding the green boughs aloft he is carried shoulder high with music and joyous shouts to the alehouse where the dance is resumed at bordeaux on the first of may the boys of each street used to erect in it a maypole which they adorned with garlands and a great crown and every evening during the whole of the month the young people of both sexes danced singing about the pole down to the present day may trees decked with flowers and ribbons are set up on may day in every village and hamlet of gay province under them the young folk make merry and the old folk rest maypoles among the karens of burma the red karens of upper burma hold a festival in april at which the chief ceremony is the erection of a post on ground set apart for the purpose in or near each village a new post is set up every year the old ones are left standing but are not renewed if they fall or decay omens are first drawn from chicken bones as to which tree will be the best to fell for the boast which day will be the luckiest and so on a pole some twenty or thirty feet long is then hewn from the tree and ornamented with a brutally carved capital on the lucky day all the villagers assemble and drag the pole to the chosen spot when it has been set up the people dance a rude sort of maypole dance to the music of drums and gongs much pork is eaten and much liquor drunk on this festive occasion permanent maypoles in all these cases apparently the custom is or was to bring in a new may tree each year however in england the village maypole seems as a rule at least in latter times to have been permanent not renewed annually villages of upper bavaria renew their maypole once every three four or five years it is a fir tree fetched from the forest, and amid all the reefs, flags, and inscriptions with which it is bedecked, an essential part is the bunch of dark green foliage left at the top as a memento than it we have to do, not with a dead pole, but with a living tree from the green wood. We can hardly doubt that originally the practice everywhere was to set up a new may tree every year, as the object of the custom was to bring in the fructifying spirit of vegetation, newly awakened in spring the end would have been defeated if instead of a living tree green and sappy an old withered one had been erected year after year or allowed to stand permanently when however the meaning of the custom had been forgotten and the may tree was regarded simply as a centre for holiday merry-making people saw no reason for felling a fresh tree every year and preferred to let the same tree stand permanently only decking it with fresh flowers on may day but even when the main pole had thus become a fixture the need of giving it the appearance of being a green tree not a dead pole was sometimes felt thus at wevenham in cheshire are two maypoles which are decorated on this day may day with all due attention to the ancient solemnity the sides are hung with garlands and the top terminated by a birch rather tall centre tree with its leaves on the dark being peeled and the stem spliced to the pole so as to give the appearance of one tree from the summit thus the renewal of the may tree is like the renewal of the harvest may each is intended to secure a fresh portion of the fertilizing spirit of vegetation and to preserve it throughout the year 
but whereas the efficiency of the harvest may is restricted to promoting the growth of the crops, that the may tree or may branch extends also, as we have seen, to women and cattle. The may tree burnt at the end of the year. Lastly, it is worth noting that the old may tree is sometimes burned at the end of the year. Thus, in the district of Prague, young people break pieces of the public may tree and place them behind the holy pictures in their rooms, where they remain till the next May Day, and are then burned on the hearth. In Wittenberg, the bushes which are set up on the houses on Palm Sunday are sometimes left there for a year and then burnt. The iris zone, the harvest may of Greece, was perhaps burnt at the end of the year. Tree spirit detached from the tree and represented in human form. So much for the tree spirit conceived as incorporate or imminent in the tree. We have now to show that the tree spirit is often conceived and represented as detached from the tree and clothed in human form and even as embodied in living men or women. The evidence for this anthropomorphic representation of the tree spirit is largely to be found in the popular customs of European peasantry. These will be described presently, but before examining them we may notice an Estonian folktale which illustrates the same train of thought very clearly. Estonian Story of a Tree Elf Once upon a time, so runs the tale, a young peasant was busy raking the hay in a meadow, when on the rim of the horizon a heavy thundercloud loomed black and angry, warning him to make haste with his work before the storm should break. He finished in time, and was wending his way homeward, when, under a tree, he espied a stranger fast asleep. He will be drenched to the skin, he thought, the good-natured young fellow to himself, if I allow him to sleep on. So he stepped up to the sleeper, and shaking him forcibly roused him from his slumber. The stranger started up, and at sight of the thundercloud which now darkened the sky, he blenched, fumbled in his pockets, and finding nothing in them wherewith to reward the friendly swain, he said, This time I am your debtor, but the time will come when I shall be able to repay your kindness. Remember what I tell you, you will enlist. You will be parted from your friends for years, and one day a feeling of homesickness will come over you in a foreign land. Then look up, and you will see a crooked birch tree a few steps from you. Go to it, knock thrice on the trunk, and ask, Is the crooked one at home? The rest will follow. With these words, the stranger hastened away, and was out of sight in a moment. The peasant also went his way, and soon forgot all about the matter. Well, time went by, and part of the stranger's prophecy came true, where the peasant turned soldier and served in a cavalry regiment for years. One day, when he was quartered with his regiment in the north of Finland, it fell to his turn to tend the horses while his comrades were roistering in the tavern. Suddenly a great yearning for home, such as he had never known before, came over the lonely trooper. Tears started to his eyes and dear visions of his native land crowded on his soul. Then he bethought him of the sleeping stranger in the wood, and the whole scene came back to him as fresh as if it had happened yesterday. He looked up, and there, strange to tell, he was aware of a crooked birch tree right in front of him. More than just then in earnest, he went up to him and did as the stranger had bidden him. Hardly had the words, Is a crooked one at home, passed his lips, when the stranger himself stood before him and said, I am glad you have come. I feared you had forgotten me. You wish to be at home, do you not? The trooper said, Yes, he did. Then the crooked one cried into the tree, Young folks, which of you is the fleetest? A voice from the birch replied, Father, I can run as fast as a moored hen flies. Well, I need a fleetier message today. A second voice answered, I can run like the wind. I need a swifter envoy, said the father. Then the third voice cried, I can run like the thought of man. You are after my own heart. 
fill a bag full of gold and take it with my friend and benefactor to his home. Then he caught the soldier by the hat, crying, The hat to the man and the man to the house. The same moment the soldier felt his hat fly from his head. When he looked about for it, lo, it was at home in the old familiar parlour, wearing his old peasant clothes, and the great sack of money stood before him. He on parade, and at the roll call he was never missed. When the man who told his story was asked, Who could the stranger be? He answered, Who but a tree elf? Tree spirit represented simultaneously in vegetable and human form. There is an instructive class of cases in which the tree spirit is represented simultaneously in vegetable form and in human form, which are set side by side as if for the express purpose of explaining each other. In these cases, a human representative of the tree spirit is sometimes a doll or puppet, sometimes a living person. But whether a puppet or a person is placed beside a tree or bough, so that together the personal puppet and the tree or bough form a sort of bilingual inscription, the one being, so to speak, a translation of the other. Here, therefore, there is no room left for doubt that the spirit of the tree is actually represented in human form. Thus, in Bohemia, on the fourth Sunday in Lent, young people throw a puppet called Death into the water. Then the girls go into the wood, cut down a young tree, and fasten it to a puppet dressed in white clothes to look like a woman. With this tree and puppet, they go from house to house collecting gratitudes and singing songs with the refrain, We carry death out of the village. We bring summer into the village. Here, as we shall see later on, the summer is the spirit of vegetation returning or reviving in spring. In some parts of our own country, children go about asking for pence, with some small imitations of maypoles, and with a finely dressed doll which they call the Lady of the May. In these cases, the tree and the puppet are obviously regarded as equivalent. The Little May Rose At Than in Alsace, a girl called the Little May Rose dressed in white, carries a small may tree which is gay with garlands and ribbons. Her companions collect gifts from door to door, singing a song. Little May Rose, turn round three times. Let us look at you round and round. Rose of the May, come to the greenwood away. We will be merry all. So we go from the May to the roses. In the course of the song, a wish is expressed that those who give nothing may lose their fowls by the marten, that their vine may bear no clusters, their tree no nuts, their fields no corn. The produce of the year is supposed to depend on the gifts offered to these May singers. Here and in the case mentioned above, where children go about with green boughs or garlands on May Day, singing and collecting money. The meaning is that, with the spirit of vegetation, they bring plenty and good luck to the house, and they expect to be paid for the service. In Russian Lithuania, on the 1st of May, they used to set up a green tribe before the village. Then the rustic swains chose the prettiest girl, crowned her, swathed her in birch branches, and set her beside the may-tree, where they danced, sang, and shouted, O oh May, O oh May! In Brie, Isle de France, a may-tree is set up in the midst of the village. Its top is crowned with flowers. Lower, down it is twined with leaves and twigs, still lower, with huge green branches. The girls dance round it. At the same time, a lad wrapped in leaves and called Father May is led about. The Walburr in the small towns of the Franklin Wald Mountains in northern Bavaria, on the 2nd of May, a warble tree is erected before a tavern, and a man dances round it, enveloped in straw from head to foot, in such a way that the ears of corn unite above his head to form a crown. He is called the warbler, and used to be led in procession through the streets, which were adorned with sprigs of birch. Green George in Corinthia 
Amongst the Slavs of Carinthia, on St. George's Day, the 23rd of April, the young people deck with flowers and garlands a tree which has been felled on the eve of the festival. The tree is then carried in procession, accompanied with music and joyful acclamations, the chief figure in the procession being the Green George, a young fellow clad from head to foot in green birch branches. At the close of the ceremonies, the Green George, that is an effigy of him, is thrown into the water. It is the aim of the lad who acts Green George to step out of his leafy envelope and substitute the effigy so adroitly that no one shall perceive the change. In many places, however, the lad himself who plays the part of Green George is docked in a river or pond, and the express intention of thus ensuring rain to make the fields and meadows green in summer. In some places the cattle are crowned and driven from their stalls to the accompaniment of a song. Green George we bring, Green George we accompany, may he feed our herds well, if not to the water with him. Here we see that the same powers of making rain and fostering the cattle, which are ascribed to the tree spirit regarded as incomparate in the tree, are also attributed to the tree spirit represented by living man. Green George Among the Gypsies Among the gypsies of Transylvania and Romania, the festival of Green George is a chief celebration of spring. Some of them keep it on Eastern Monday, others on St. George's Day, the 23rd of April. On the eve of the festival, a young willow tree is cut down, adorned with garlands and leaves, and set up in the ground. Women with child place one of their garments under the tree, and leave it there overnight. If next morning they find a leaf of the tree lying on the garment, they know that their delivery will be easy. Sick and old people go to the tree in the evening, spit on it thrice, and say, You will soon die, but let us live. Next morning the gypsies gather about the willow. The chief figure of the festival is Green George, a lad who is concealed from top to toe in green leaves and blossoms. He throws a few handfuls of grass to the beasts of the tribe, in order that they may have no lack of water throughout the year. Then he takes three iron nails, which have lain for three days and nights in water, and knocks them into the willow, after which he pulls them out and flings them into a running stream to propitiate the water spirits. Finally, a pretense is made of throwing Green George into the water, but in fact it is only a puppet made of branches and leaves which is ducked in the stream. In this version of the custom, the powers of granting an easy delivery to women and of communicating vital energy to the sick and old are clearly ascribed to the willow. With Green George, the human double of the tree bestows food on the cattle and further ensures a favour of the water spirits by putting them in indirect communication with the tree. Double representation of the tree spirit by tree and man among the Oraeans. An example of the double representation of the spirit of vegetation by a tree and a living man is reported from Bengal. The Oraeans have a festival in spring, while the cell trees are in blossom, because they think that at this time the marriage of earth is celebrated and the cell flowers are necessary for the ceremony. On the appointed day, the villagers go with their priests to the Sarna, the sacred grove, a remnant of the old cell forest in which a goddess Sarna, Buri, or woman of the grove, is supposed to dwell. She is thought to have great influence on the rain, and the priest arriving with his party at the grove sacrifices to her five fowls, of which a morsel is given to each person present. Then they gather the cell flowers and return laden with them to the village. Next day the priest visits every house, carrying the flowers in a wide open basket. The women of each house bring out water to wash his feet as he approaches, and kneeling, make him an obeisance. Then he dances with them and places some of the cell flowers over the door of the house and in the women's hair. No sooner is this done than the women empty their water jugs over him, drenching him to the skin. A feast follows and the young people with cell flowers in their hair dance all night on the village green. 
here the equivalence of the flower-bearing priest to the goddess of the flowering tree comes out plainly for she is supposed to influence the rain and the drenching of the priest with water is doubtless by the ducking of the green george in corinthia and elsewhere a rain charm thus the priest as if he were the tree goddess herself goes from door to door dispensing rain and bestowing fruitfulness on each house but especially on the women double representation of the harvest goddess guri by a bundle of plants and an unmarried girl in some parts of india the harvest goddess guri the wife of siva is represented both by an unmarried girl and by a bundle of the wild flowering balsam plant touch me not impatience s p which is tied up in a mummy-like figure with a woman's mask dress and ornaments if all being removed from the soil to represent the goddess the plants are worshipped the girls also worshipped then the bundle of plants is carried and the girl who personates the goddess walks through the rooms of the house while the supposed footprints of gori herself are imprinted on the floor with red paste on entering each room the human representative gori is asked gori gori whither you come and what do you see and the girl makes appropriate replies then she is given a mouthful of sweets and the mistress of the house says come with golden feet and stay forever the plant form effigy of gori is afterwards worshipped as the goddess herself and receives offerings of rice cakes and pancakes on the third day it is thrown into a river or tank then a handful of pebbles or sand is brought home from the spot and thrown all over the house and the trees to bring them luck to the house and to protect the trees from vermin a remarkable feature of the ceremonies is that the goddess gori is supposed to be secretly followed by her husband siva who remains hidden under the fold of a garment and is represented by a lotoa covered by a coconut and filled with rice which is carefully measured after the image of gori has been thrown into the river or tank the rice of the lota representing siva is carefully measured again in order to see whether the quantity has increased or decreased and according to the result an abundant or a scanty harvest is prognosticated hence it appears that the whole ritual aims at ensuring a plentiful crop of rice in this case the spirit of vegetation thus represented is duplicate by a living girl and the effigy of a woman is a harvest goddess not a tree spirit but the principle is the same w manhart's summary of the evidence without citing more examples to the same effect we may sum up the results of the preceding pages in the words of manhart the customs quoted suffice to establish with certainty the conclusion that in these spring processions the spirit of vegetation is often represented both by the may tree and in addition by a man dressed in green leaves or flowers or by a girl similarly adorned it is the same spirit which animates the tree and is active in the inferior plants and which we have recognized in the may tree and the harvest may quite consistently the spirit is also supposed to manifest its presence in the first flower of spring and reveals himself both in a girl representing a may rose and also as giver of harvest in the person of the walber the procession with this representative of the divinity was supposed to produce the same beneficial effect on the fowls the fruit trees and the crops as the presence of the deity himself in other words the mummer was regarded not as an image but as an actual representative of the spirit of vegetation hence the wish expressed by the attendants on the may rose and the may tree that those who refuse them gifts of eggs bacon and so forth may have no share in the blessings which it is in the power of the itinerant spirits to bestow we may conclude that these begging processions with may trees or may boughs from door to door bringing the may or the summer had everywhere originally a serious and so to speak sacramental significance people really believed that the god of growth was present unseen in the bough by the procession he was brought to each house to bestow his blessing the names may father may may lady queen of the may 
by which the anthropomorphic spirit of vegetation of denoted show that the idea of the spirit of vegetation is bent with the personification of the season at which his powers are most strikingly manifested tree spirits or vegetation spirit represented by a person alone thus far we have seen that the tree spirit or the spirit of vegetation in general is represented either in vegetable form alone as by a tree bough or flower or in vegetable and human form simultaneously as by a tree bough or flower in combination with a puppet or a living person it remains to show that representation of him by a tree bough or flower is sometimes entirely dropped while the representation of him by a living person remains in this case representative character of the person is generally marked by dressing him or her in leaves or flowers sometimes too is indicated by the name he or she bears green george in russia thus in some parts of russia on st george's day the twenty third of april a youth is dressed out like our jack in the green with leaves and flowers the slovenes call him green george holding a lighted torch in one hand and upon the other he goes out to the cornfields followed by girls singing appropriate songs a circle of bush wood is then lighted in the middle of which is set the pie all who take part in the ceremony then sit down around the fire and divide the pie among them in this custom the green george dressed in leaves and flowers is plainly identical with the similarly disguised green george who is associated with a tree in the corinthian transylvanian and romanian customs observed on the same day with sun-tied customs in russia again we saw that in russia a with sun-tied a birch tree is dressed in woman's clothes and set up in the house clearly equivalent to this is the custom observed on with sunday by russian girls in the district of pinsk they chose the prettiest of their number envelope her in a mass of foliage taken from the birch trees and maples and carry her about through the village in a district of little russia they take round a poplar represented by a girl wearing bright flowers in her hair and with sun-tide in holland poor women used to go about begging with a little girl called with sun-tide flower pinkster bluem perhaps a kind of iris she was decked with flowers and sat in a wagon in north brabant she wears the flowers from which she takes her name and a song is sung with sun-tide flower turn yourself once round may customs in france all over province on the first of may pretty little girls are dressed in white decked with crowns and wreaths of roses and sit on seats or platforms strewn with flowers in the streets while their companions go about begging coppers for the mayos or maize as they are called from the passers-by in some parts of the ardennes on may day a small girl clad in white and wearing a chaplet of flowers on her head used to go from house to house with her playmates collecting contributions and singing that it was may the month of may the pretty month of may that the wheat was tall the hawthorn in bloom and the lark carolling in the sky the little leaf man in ruha thuringen as soon as the trees begin to grow green in spring the children assemble on a sunday and go out into the woods where they choose one of their playmates to be the little leaf man they break branches from the trees and twine them about the child till only his shoes peep out from the leafy mantle holes are made in it for him to see through and two of the children lead the little leaf man that he may not stumble or fall singing and dancing they take him from house to house asking for gifts of food such as eggs cream sausages and cakes lastly they sprinkle the leaf man with water and feast on the food they have collected leaf-clad mummers at whitesuntide at Rolsholtzen, on the Schwalm, in Heath, 
with afternoon services over on wet sunday the schoolboys and schoolgirls go out into the wood and there clothe the boy from head to foot in leaves so that nobody would know him he is called little wet sun-tide man a procession is informed two boys say the leaf-clad playfellow two others precede him with a basket and two girls with another basket bring up the rear thus they go from house to house singing hymns or popular songs and collecting eggs and cakes in the baskets when they have feasted on these they strip their comrade of his verdant envelope on an open place in front of the village in some parts of rhenish bavaria at Woodsuntide, a boy or lad is swathed in the yellow blossom of the broom the dark green twigs of the firs and other foliage thus attired he is known as the quack and goes from door to door whirling about in a dance while an appropriate song is chanted and his companions levy contributions in the Fricktal, switzerland at Woodsuntide, boys go out into a wood and swathe one of their number in leafy boughs he is called the Woodsuntide lout fingst lummel and being mounted on horseback with a green branch in his hand he is led back into the village at the village well a hole is called and leaf-clad lout is dismounted and ducked in the trough thereby he acquires the right to sprinkling water on everybody and he exercises the right specially on girls and street urchins the urchins march before him in bands begging him to give them Whitsuntide wetting jack and the green in england in england the best-known example of these leaf-clad mummers is the jack in the green a chimney-sweeper who walks encased in a pyramidal framework of wicker-work which is covered with holly and ivy and surmounted by a crown of flowers and ribbons thus arrayed he dances on may day at the head of a troop of chimney-sweeps who collect pence the ceremony was witnessed at chettenham on the second of may eighteen ninety two by dr w h d rouse who has described in detail the costume of the performers they are all chimney-sweeps of the town jack in the green or the bush carrier was enclosed in a wooden framework on which leaves were fastened so as to make a thick cone about six feet high topped with a crown which consisted of two wooden hoops placed crosswise and covered with flowers the leafy envelope was unbroken except for a single opening through which peered the face of the mummer from time to time in their progress through the streets the performers halted and three of them dressed in red blue and yellow respectively tripped lightly round the leaf-clad man in the inspiring strains of a fiddle and a tin whistle on which two of their comrades with blackened faces discoursed sweet music the leader of the procession was a clown fantastically clad in a long white pinafore or blouse with coloured fringes and frills and wearing on his head a beaver hat of the familiar pattern the crown of which hung loose and was adorned with ribbons and a bird or a bundle of feathers large black rings surrounded his eyes and a red dab over mouth and chin lent a pleasing variety to his countenance he contributed to the public hilarity by flapping the yellow fringe of his blouse with quaint gestures and occasionally fanning himself languidly his efforts were seconded by another performer who wore a red fool's cap all stuck with flowers and a white pinafore enriched with black human figures in front and a black gridiron-like pattern crossed diagonally by a red bar at the back two boys in white pinafores with similar figures or stars on the breast and a fish on the back completed the company formerly there used to be a man in woman's clothes who personated the clown's wife in some parts also of france a young fellow is encased in the wicker framework covered with leaves and is led about the witch sun-tied basket in switzerland in frickthal in the swiss canton of argyll a similar frame of basket work is called the witch sun-tied basket as soon as the trees begin to bud a spot is chosen in the wood and here the village lads make the frame with all secrecy lest others should forestall them leafy branches are twined round two hoops one of which rests on the shoulders of the weaver the other encircles his calves 
Holes are made for his eyes and mouth, and a large nosegay crowns the whole. In this guise, he appears suddenly in the village at the hour of vespers, preceded by three boys blowing on horns made of willow bark. The great object of his supporters is to set up the Whitsuntide basket on the village well, and to keep it and him there, despite the efforts of the lads from neighbouring villages who seek to carry off Whitsuntide basket and set it up on their own wells. The Lazy Man in Wurtemberg in the neighbourhood of Ertingen, Wurtemberg, a masker of the same sort, known as a lazy man, Latzmann, goes about the village of midsummer day. He is hidden under a great pyramidal or conical frame of wickerwork, ten or twelve feet high, which is completely covered with sprigs of fur. He has a bell which he rings as he goes, and he is attended by a suit of persons dressed up in character, a footman, a colonel, a butcher, an angel, the devil, the doctor, and so on. They march in Indian file and halt before every house, where each of them speaks in character, except the lazy man who says nothing. With what they get by begging from door to door, they hold a feast. In the class of cases in which the foregoing are specimens, it is obvious that the leaf-clad person who is led about is equivalent to the may-tree, may-bow or may-doll, which is carried from house to house by children begging. Both are representatives of the beneficent spirit of vegetation, whose visit to the house is recompensed by a present of money or food. Leaf-clad representative of vegetation sometimes called a king or queen. Often the leaf-clad person who represents the spirit of vegetation is known as the king or the queen. Thus, for example, he or she is called the May King, with Suntide King, Queen of May, and so on. These titles, as Manhart observed, imply on the spirit incorporate in vegetation as a ruler, whose creative power extends far and wide. May Kings with Suntide in Germany and Bohemia. In a village near Swellswedel, a May tree is set up at Whitsuntide and the boys race to it. He who reaches it first is king. A garland of flowers is put round his neck and in his hand he carries a May bush, with which, as the procession moves along, he sweeps away the dew. At each house they sing a song wishing the inmates good luck, referring to the black cow in the store milking white milk, black hen, and the nest laying white eggs, and begging a gift of eggs, bacon, and so on. At the village of Elgoth in Silesia, a ceremony called the King's Race observed at Whitsuntide. A pole with a cloth tied to it is set up on a meadow, and the young men ride past it on horseback, each trying to snatch away the cloth as he gallops by. The one who succeeds in carrying it off and dipping it in the neighbouring odour is proclaimed king. Here the pole is clearly a substitute for a may tree. In some villages of Brunswick at Whitsuntide, a may king is completely enveloped in a may bush. In some parts of Thuringen, also, they have a May King at Whitsuntide, but he is dressed up rather differently. A frame of wood is made in which a man can stand, it is completely covered with birch boughs, and is surmounted by a crown, birch, and flowers in which a bell is fastened. This frame is placed in the wood, and the May King gets into it. The rest go out and look for him, and when they have found him, they lead him back into the village to the magistrate, the clergyman, and others, who have to guess who is in the Virtus frame. The May King If they guess wrong, the May King rings his bell by shaking his head, and a forfeit of beer and the like must be paid by the unsuccessful guesser. At Wardstadt, in Brunswick, the boys of which Sunday choose by lot a king of a high steward, Fustji Mayer. The latter is completely concealed in a maybush, wears a wooden crown wreathed with flowers, and carries a wooden sword. The king, on the other hand, is only distinguished by a nosegay in his cap and a reed, 
with a red ribbon tied to it in his hand they beg for eggs from house to house threatening that when none are given none will be laid by the hens throughout the year in this custom the high steward appears for some reason to have usurped the insignia of the king the leaf king at hildesheim in hanover five or six young fellows go about on the afternoon of white monday cracking long whips in measured time and collecting eggs from the houses the chief person in the band is the leaf king a lad swathed so completely in birchen twigs that nothing of him can be seen but his feet a huge headdress of birch twigs as to his apparent stature in his hand he carries a long crook with which he tries to catch stray dogs and children in some parts of bohemia on whit monday the young fellows disguise themselves in tall caps of birch bark adorned with flowers one of them is dressed as a king and dragged on a sledge to the village green and if on the way they pass a pool the sledge is always overturned into it arrived at the green they gather round the king the crier jumps on a stone or climbs up a tree and recites lampoons about each house and its inmates afterwards the disguises of bark are stripped off and they go about the village on holiday attire carrying a may tree and baking cakes eggs and corn are sometimes given them the grass king at grosfagula near langenzasra in the eighteenth century a grass king used to be led about in procession at whitsundide he was encased in a pyramid of poplar branches on top of which was adorned with a royal crown of branches and flowers he rode on horseback with the leafy pyramid over him so that its lower end touched the ground and an opening was left in it only for his face surrounded by a cavalcade of young fellows he rode in procession to the town hall the parsonage and so on where they all got a drink of beer then under the seven lindens of the neighbouring sommerberg the grass king was stripped of his green casing the crown was handed to the mayor and the branches were stuck in the flax fields in order to make the flax grow tall in this last trait the fertilizing influence ascribed to the representative of the tree spirit comes out clearly in the neighbourhood of pilsen bohemia a conical hut of green branches without any door is erected with sun-tide in the midst of the village to this hut rides a troop of village lads with a king at their head he wears a sword at his side and a sugar-loaf hat of rushes on his head in his train are a judge a crier and a personage called the frog flayer or hangman this last is a sort of ragged merry andrew wearing a rusty old sword and bestriding a sorry hack on reaching the hut the crier dismounts and goes round it looking for a door finding none he says ah this is perhaps an enchanted castle the witches creep through the leaves and need no door at last he draws his sword and hews his way into the hut where there is a chair on which he seats himself and proceeds to criticise and rhyme the girls farmers and farm servants of the neighbourhood when this is over the frog flayer steps forward and after exhibiting a cage with frogs in it sets up a gallows on which he hangs the frogs in a row in the neighbourhood of place the ceremony differs in some points the king and his soldiers are completely clad in bark adorned with flowers and ribbons they all carry swords and ride horses which are gay with green branches and flowers while the village dames and girls are being criticised at the arbor a frog is secretly pinched and poked by the cry till it quacks sentence of death is passed on the frog by the king the hangman beheads it and flings a bleeding body among the spectators lastly the king is driven from the hut and pursued by the soldiers the pinching and beheading of the frog are doubtless as manhart observes a rain charm we have seen that some indians of the orinoco beat frogs for the express purpose of producing rain and that killing a frog is a european rain charm 
May queens are with sun-dyed queens. Often the spirit of vegetation in spring is represented by a queen instead of a king. In the neighborhood of Libchowik, Bohemia, on the fourth Sunday in Lent, girls dressed in white and wearing the first spring flowers, as violets and daisies, in their hair, lead about the village a girl who is called the queen and is crowned with flowers. During the procession, which is conducted with great solemnity, none of the girls may stand still, but must keep whirling round continually and singing. In every house the queen announces the arrival of spring and wishes the inmates good luck and blessings, for which she receives presents. In German Hungary the girls choose the prettiest girl to be their Whitsuntide queen, fasten a towering wreath on her brow, and carry her singing through the streets. In every house they stop, sing old ballads, and receive presents. In the southeast of Ireland on May Day, the prettiest girl used to be chosen queen of the district for twelve months. She was crowned with wildflowers, feasting, dancing, and rustic sports followed, and were closed by a grand procession in the evening. During her year of office, she presided over rural gatherings of young people at dances and merrymakings. If she married before the next May Day, her authority was at an end, but her successor was not elected till that day came round. The May Queen of Warwickshire the May Queen is common in France and familiar in England. Thus, at the adjoining villages of Charrington and Sturton in South Warwickshire, the Queen of May is still represented on May Day by a small girl dressed in white and wearing a wreath of flowers on her head. An older girl wheels a queen in what is called a mail cart, that is, a child's perambulator on two wheels. Another girl carries a money box. Four boys bear the maypole, a conical framework formed of a high tripod with a central shaft. The whole structure is encased in a series of five hoops, which rise one above the other, diminishing in size from bottom to top with the tapering of the cone. The hoops as well as the tripod and the central shaft are all covered with whatever flowers happen to be in bloom, such as marsh marigolds, primroses, or bluebells. To the top of the central shaft is fastened a bunch of the flowers called crown imperial, if it is in season. The lowest hoop is crossed by two bars at right angles to each other, and the projecting ends of the bars serve as handles by which the four boys carry the maypole. Each of the bearers has a garland of flowers slung over his shoulder, thus the children go from house to house singing their songs and receiving money, which goes to provide a treat for them in the afternoon. Spirit of vegetation represented simultaneously by a king and queen or a bridegroom and bride. Again, the spirit of vegetation is sometimes represented by a king and queen, a lord and lady, or a bridegroom and bride. Here again the parallelism holds between the anthropomorphic and the vegetable representation of the tree spirit, for we have seen above that trees are sometimes married to each other. At Halford in South Warwickshire, the children go from house to house on May Day, walking two and two in procession, and headed by a king and queen. Two boys carry a maypole, some six or seven feet high, which is covered with flowers and greenery. Fastened to near the top are two crossbars at right angles to each other. These are also decked with flowers, and from the ends of the bars hang hoops similarly adorned. At the houses the children sing May songs and receive money, which is used to provide tea for them at the schoolhouse in the afternoon. With Suntide King and Queen In a Bohemian village near Koningratz on Whit Monday, the children play the king's game, in which a king and queen march about under a canopy the queen wearing a garland and the youngest girl carrying two wreaths on a plate behind them. They are attended by boys and girls called groomsmen and bridesmaids, and they go from house to house collecting gifts. 
a regular feature in the proper celebration of which suntide in silesia used to be and to some extent still is the contest for the kingship this contest took various forms but the mark or goal was generally the may tree or maypole sometimes the youth who succeeded in climbing the smooth pole and bringing down the prize was proclaimed the whitsuntide king and his sweetheart the whitsuntide bride afterwards the king carrying the maybush repaired the rest of the canopy to the alehouse where a dance and a feast ending the merrymaking often the young farmers and labourers raced on horseback to the maypole which was adorned with flowers ribbons and a crown he who first reached the pole was with suntide king and the rest had to obey his orders for that day the worst rider became the clown at the may tree all dismounted and hoisted the king on their shoulders he nimbly swarmed up the pole and brought down the maybush and the crown which had been fastened to the top meantime the clown hurried to the alehouse and proceeded to bolt thirty rolls of bread and to swig four quart bottles of brandy with the utmost possible dispatch he was followed by the king who bore the maybush and crown at the head of the company if on their arrival the clown had already disposed of the rolls and the brandy and greeted the king with a speech and a glass of beer his score was paid by the king otherwise he had to sell it himself after church time the stately procession wound through the village at the head of it rode the king decked with flowers and carrying the maybush next came the clown with his clothes turned inside out a great flaxen beard on his chin and the whitsuntide crown on his head two riders disguised as guards followed the procession drew up before every farmyard and two guards dismounted shut the clown into the house and claimed a contribution from the housewife to buy soap with which to wash the clown's beard custom allowed them to carry off any victuals which were not under lock and key last of all they came to the house in which the king's sweetheart lived she was greeted at which suntide queen and received suitable presents to wit a many-coloured sash a cloth and an apron the king got a, as a prize a vest a neckcloth and so forth and had the right of settling up the maybush or with suntide tree before his master's yard where it remained as an honourable token to the same next day finally the procession took its way to the tavern where the king and queen opened the dance sometimes with suntide king and queen succeeded to office in a different way a man of straw as large as life and crowned with a red cap was conveyed in a cart between two men armed and disguised as guards to a place where a mock court was waiting to try him a great crowd followed the cart after formal trial the straw man was condemned to death and fastened a stake on the execution ground the young men with bandaged eyes tried to stab him with a spear he who succeeded became king and his sweetheart queen the straw man was known as the goliath near grenoble in france a king and a queen are chosen on the first of may and are set on a throne for all to see at headington near oxford children used to carry garlands from door to door on may day each garland was borne by two girls and they were followed by a lord and lady a boy and a girl linked together by a white handkerchief of which each held an end and dressed with ribbons sashes and flowers at each door they sang a verse gentlemen and ladies we wish you happy may we come to show you a garland because it is may day on receiving money the lord put his arm about his lady's waist and kissed her and flew to years in switzerland on the seventh of may eighteen forty three a may bridegroom epochs de may and his bride were escorted in a procession of over two hundred children some of whom carried green branches of beech a number of may fools were entrusted with the delicate duty of going round with the hat the proceeds of their tact and industry furnished a banquet in the evening and the day ended with a children's ball in some saxon villages at whitsuntide a lad and a lass used to disguise themselves and hide in the bushes or high grass outside the village then the whole village went out with music to seek the bridal pair 
When they found the couple, they all gathered round them. The music struck up, and the bridal pair was led merrily to the village. In the evening they danced, and in some places the bridal pair was called the prince and the princess. With Suntide Bridegroom and Bride in Denmark In a parish of Denmark it used to be the custom at Whitsuntide to dress up a little girl as a Whitsun bride, Pins Brunden, and a little boy as her groom. She was decked in all the finery of a grown-up bride, and wore a crown of the freshest flowers of spring on her head. Her groom was as gay as flowers, ribbons and knots could make him. The other children adorned themselves as best they could with the yellow flowers of the toilers in Calther. Then they went in great state from farmhouse to farmhouse, two little girls walking at the head of the procession as bridesmaids, and six or eight outriders galloping ahead on hobby horses announced their coming. Contributions of eggs, butter, loaves, cream, coffee, sugar, and tallow candles were received and conveyed away in baskets. When they had made the round of the farms, some of the farmers' wives helped to arrange the wedding feast, and the children danced merrily in clogs on the stamped clay floor till the sun rose and the birds began to sing. All this is now a thing of the past. Only the old folks still remember the little Whitsun bride and her mimic pomp. Midsummer Bridegroom and Bride in Sweden and Norway we have seen that in Sweden the ceremonies associated elsewhere with May Day would sometimes commonly take place at midsummer. Accordingly, you'll find that in some parts of the Swedish province of Blekinge they still chose a midsummer's bride to whom the church coronet is occasionally lent. The girl selects for herself a bridegroom, and a collection is made for the pair, for who, the time being, are looked on as man and wife. The other youths also chose each his bride. A similar ceremony seems to be still kept up in Norway, for the correspondent writes to me as follows, in reference to the Danish custom of its son to bride. It may interest you to know that on June 23, 1893, I witnessed at Alinzang, Hardanger, Norway, a ceremony almost exactly the same as I described in your book. Wildflowers are scarce there, and the bride wore the usual metal crown, the attendants for the most part wearing the pretty Hardanger costume. The dancing took place in an unlidded barn, as a farmer was afraid of fire. There were plenty of boys at the dance, but so far as I can remember, none in the procession. The custom is clearly dying out, and the somewhat reluctant bridegroom was the subject of a good deal of chaff from his fellows. In Sardinia, the midsummer couples are known as the Sweethearts of St. John, and their association with the growth of plants is clearly brought out by the pots of sprouting grain which form a principal part of the ceremony. Forsaken Bridegroom or Bride of May Whitsuntide In the neighbourhood of Bregon, Dauphine, on May Day, the lads wrap up in green leaves a young fellow whose sweetheart has deserted him or married another. He lies down on the ground and feigns to be asleep. Then a girl who likes him and would marry him comes and wakes him, and raising him up offers him her arm and a flag. So they go to the alehouse, where the pair lead off the dancing. But they must marry within the year, or they are treated as old bachelor and old maid, and are debarred the company of the young folk. The lad is called the bridegroom of the month of May, Le Fancy du Moist de May. In the alehouse he puts off his garments of leaves, out of which, mixed with flowers, his partner in the dance makes a nosegay, and wears it at her breast next day, when he leads her again to the alehouse. Like this is a Russian custom observed in the district of Narekta, on the Thursday before Whit Sunday. The girls go out into a birch wood, wind a girdle or band round a stately birch, twist its lower branches into a wreath, and kiss each other in pairs through the wreath, 
The girls who kiss through the wreath call each other gossips. Then one of the girls steps forwards and mimicking a drunken man flings herself on the ground, rolls on the grass and feigns to fall fast asleep. Another girl wakens the pretending sleeper and kisses him, and the whole bevy trips singing through the wood to twine garlands, which they throw into the water. In the fate of the garlands floating on the stream, they read their own. Here the part of the sleep was probably at one time played by a lad. In these French and Russian customs, we have a forsaken bridegroom, in the following of a second bride. On Shrove Tuesday, the Slovenes of Obrican drag a straw puppet with joyous cries up and down the village. Then they throw it into the water or burn it, and from the height of the flames they judge of the abundance of the next harvest. The noisy crew is followed by a female masker, who drags a great hoard by a string and gives out that she is a forsaken bride. Viewed in the light of what has gone before, the awakening of the forsaken sleeper in these ceremonies probably represents the revival of vegetation in spring, but it is not easy to assign their respective parts to the forsaken bridegroom and to the girl who wakes him from his slumber. Is the sleeper the leafless forest or the bare earth of winter? Is the girl who wakes him the fresh verdure or the genial sunshine of spring? It is hardly possible on the evidence before us to answer these questions. The Oreans of Bengal, it may be remembered, celebrate the marriage of earth in the springtime when the sal tree is in blossom, but from this we can hardly argue that in the European ceremonies the sleeping bridegroom is the trimming earth and the girl the spring blossoms. St. Bride in Scotland and the Isle of Man In the highlands of Scotland, the revival of vegetation in spring used to be graphically represented on St. Bride's Day, the 1st of February. Thus in the Hebrides, the mistress and servants of each family take a sheaf of oats and dress it up in women's apparel, put it in a large basket and lay a wooden club by it, and this they call Brid's Bed, and then the mistress and servants cry three times, Britters come, Britters welcome. This they do just before going to bed, and when they rise in the morning they look among the ashes expecting to see the impression of Brit's club there, which if they do, they reckon it a true presage of a good crop and a prosperous year. And the contrary they take as an ill omen. The same custom is described by another witness thus. Upon the night before kennel mass, it is usual to make a bed with corn and hay over which some blankets are laid, in a part of the house near the door, when it is ready, a person goes out and repeats three times, Bridget, Bridget, come in, thy bed is ready. One or more candles are left burning nearly all night. Similarly, in the Isle of Man, on the eve of the 1st of February, a festival was formerly kept called the Manx language Lal Breshi, in honour of the Irish lady who went over to the Isle of Man to receive the veil from St. Morgold. The custom was to gather a bundle of green rushes and standing with them in the hand on the threshold of the door to invite the holy St. Bridget to come and lodge with them at night. In the Manx language, the invitation ran thus. Breed, breed, targais, my thee, tardin, thy arms knots. Foshul ji endorus da breed, as elgnin da breed a heat stray. In English, Bridget, Bridget, come to my house, come to my house tonight. Open the door for Bridget and let Bridget come in. After these words were repeated, the rushes were strewn on the floor by way of a carpet or bed for St. Bridget. A custom very similar to this was also observed in some of the out isles of the ancient kingdom of man. In these manx and highland ceremonies, it is obvious that St. Bridge or St. Bridget is an old heathen goddess of fertility, disguised in a threadbare Christian cloak. Probably she is no other than the Celtic 
goddess Bridget, who will meet us again later on. May Bride of Whatsuntide Bride After the marriage of the spirit of vegetation and spring, though not directly represented, is implied by naming the human representative of the spirit, the bride, and dressing her in a wedding attire. Thus in some villages of Altmark at Whitsuntide, while the boys go about carrying a may-tree or leading a boy enveloped in leaves and flowers, the girls lead about the may-bride, a girl dressed as a bride with a great nosegay in her hair. They go from house to house, the may-bride singing a song in which she asks for a present, and tells the inmates of each house that if they give her something they will themselves have something the whole year through. But if they give her nothing, they will themselves have nothing. In some parts of Westphalia, two girls lead a flower-crowned girl called the Whitsuntide Bride from door to door, singing a song in which they ask for eggs. At Wagham in Brunswick, when service is over on Sunday, the village girls assemble, dressed in white or bright colours, decked with flowers, wearing chaplets of spring flowers in their hair. One of them represents the May Bride, and carries a crown of flowers on a staff as a sign of her dignity. As usual, the children go about, from cottage to cottage, singing and begging for eggs, sausages, cakes, or money. In other parts of Brunswick, there is a boy clothed in all birch leaves who impersonates the May Bride. In Brest, in the month of May, a girl called La Marielle is tricked out with ribbons and nosegays, and is led about by a gallant. She is preceded by a lad carrying a green may tree, and appropriate verses are sung. End of chapter 10 and end of section 4. Section 5 of The Golden Bell. Part 1 The Magic Art of the Evolution of Kings. Volume 2 by Sir James George Fraser. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 11. The Influence of the Sexes on Vegetation The marriage of the King and Queen of May intended to promote the growth of vegetation by homeopathic magic. From the preceding examination of the spring and summer, the festivals of Europe, we may infer that our rude forefathers personified the powers of vegetation as male and female, and attempted, on the principle of homeopathic or imitative magic, to quicken the growth of trees and plants by representing the marriage of the sylvan deities in the persons of a king and queen of may a whitsuntide bridegroom and bride and so forth such representations were accordingly no mere symbolic or allegorical dramas pastoral plays designed to amuse or instruct a rustic audience they were charms intended to make the woods to grow green the fresh grass to sprout the corn to shoot and the flowers to blow and it was natural to suppose that the more closely the mock marriage of the leaf-clad or flower-decked mummers aped the real marriage of the woodland sprites, the more effective would be the charm. Accordingly, we may assume, with a high degree of probability, that the profligacy which notoriously attended these ceremonies was at one time not an accidental excess but an essential part of the rites, and that the opinion of those who performed them, the marriages of trees and plants, could not be fertile without the real union of the human sexes. At the present day, it might perhaps be vain to look in civilized Europe for customs of this sort observed for the explicit purpose of promoting the growth of vegetation. But ruder races in other parts of the world have consciously employed the intercourse of the sexes as a means to ensure the fruitfulness of the earth, and some rights which are still or too lately kept up in Europe can be reasonably explained only as stunted relics of a similar practice. 
The following facts will make this plain. Intercourse of the sexes practiced in order to make the crops grow. For four days before they committed the seed to the earth, the papayals of Central America kept apart from their wives in order that on the night before planting they might indulge their passions to the fullest extent. Certain persons are even said to have been appointed to perform the sexual act at the very moment when the first seeds were deposited in the ground. The use of their wives at that time was indeed enjoined upon the people by the priests as a religious duty, in default of which it was not lawful to sow the seed. The only possible explanation of this custom seems to be that the Indians confused the practice by which human beings reproduce their kind with a process by which plants discharge the same function, and fancying that by resorting to the former they were simultaneously forwarding the latter. In the month of December, when the alligator pears begin to ripen, the Indians of Peru used to hold a festival called Acate Mita in order to make the fruit grow mellow. The festival lasted five days and nights and was preceded by a fast of five days, during which they ate neither salt nor pepper and refrained from their wives. At the festival, men and boys assembled stark naked in open space among the orchards and ran from there to a distant hill. Any woman who they overtook on the way they violated. In some parts of Java, at the season when the bloom will soon be on the rice, the husbandman and his wife visit their fields by night and their engage in sexual intercourse with the purpose of promoting the growth of the crop. In the Leti, Samata, and some other groups of islands which lie between the western end of New Guinea and the northern part of Australia, the heathen population regard the sun as the male principle by whom the earth or female principle is fertilized. They call him Upulera, or Mr. Sun, and represent him under the form of a lamp made of coconut leaves, which may be seen hanging everywhere in their houses and in the sacred fig tree. Under the tree lies a large flat stone, which serves as a sacrificial table. Under the heads of slain foes were and are still placed in some of the islands. Once a year, at the beginning of the rainy season, Mr. Sun comes down into the holy fig tree to fertilize the earth and to facilitate his descent, a ladder with seven rungs is considerately placed at his disposal. It is set up under the tree as adorned with card figures of the birds whose shrill clarion heralds the approach of the sun at the east. On this occasion, pigs and dogs are sacrificed in profusion. Men and women alike indulge in a saturnalia, and the mystic union of the sun of the earth is dramatically represented in public, amid song and dance, by the real union of the sexes under the tree. The object of the festival, we are told, is to produce rain, plenty of food and drink, abundance of cattle and children, and riches from Grandfather Sun. They pray that he may make every she-goat to cast two or three young, the people to multiply, the dead pigs to be replaced by living pigs, the empty rice baskets to be filled and so on, and to indulge him to grant their requests, they offer him pork and rice and liquor, and invite him to fall too. In the Babur Islands, a special flag is hoisted at the festival as a symbol of the creative energy of the sun. It is of white cotton about nine feet high and consists of the figure of a man in appropriate attitude. Among the Tangals of Manabur, before the rice is sown and when it is reaped, the boys and girls have a tug of war with a tough rope a twisted creeper. Great jars of beer are set ready and the strictness of their ordinary morality is broken by a night of unbridled license. It would be unjust to treat these orgies as a mere outburst of unbridled passion. No doubt they are deliberately and solemnly organized as essential to the fertility of the earth and the welfare of man. Intercourse of the sexes practiced in order to make trees bear fruit. 
The same means which are thus adopted to stimulate the growth of the crops are naturally employed to ensure the fruitfulness of trees. The work known as the agriculture of the Nabataeans contained apparently a direction that the grafting of a tree upon another tree of a different sort should be done by a damsel, who at the very moment of inserting the graft in the bough should herself be subjected to treatment, which can only be regarded as direct copy of the operation she was performing on the tree. In some parts of Moina, when the state of the clove plantation indicates that the crop is likely to be scanty, the men go naked to the plantations by night, and they seek to fertilize the trees precisely as they would impregnate women, but at the same time they call out for more cloves. This is supposed to make the tree bear fruit more abundantly. In Java, when a palm tree is to be tapped for wine, the man who proposes to relieve the tree of its superfluous juices deems it necessary to approach the palm in the character of a lover and husband, as well as of a son. When he comes upon a palm which he thinks suitable, he will not begin cutting at the trunk until he has imitated, as delicately as he can, the reasons which lead him to perform that surgical operation, and the ardent affection which he cherishes for the tree. For this purpose he holds a dialogue with the palm, in which he naturally speaks, in the character of the tree, as well as in his own. O mother and Dangarini, he begins, for the sake of you I have let myself be drenched by the rain and scorched by the sun. Long have I saw you. Now at last have I found you. How ardently have I longed for you. Often before have you given me the breast, yet I still thirst. Therefore now ask for four potfuls more. Well, fair youth, replies the tree, I have always been here. What is the reason that you have sought me? The reason I have sought you is that I have heard you suffer from incontentia urinae. So I do, says the tree. Will you marry me, says the man? That I will, says the tree. But first you must plight your troth and recite the usual confession of faith. On that the man takes a rattan leaf and wraps it round the palm as a pledge of betrothal, after which he says the creed, There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. The maidenly and orthodox scruples of the tree having thus been satisfied, he embraces it as his bride. A verse he attaches only a small dish to the trunk to receive the juices which exude from the cut in the bark. A large dish might frighten the tree. In fastening the dish to the palm, he says, Bokkenthangrini, your child is languishing away for thirst. He asks you for a drink. The tree replies, Let him say his thirst. Mother's breasts are full to overflowing. We have already seen that in some parts of northern India, a mock marriage between two actors is performed in honour of a newly planted orchard. No doubt for the purpose of making a bare fruit. In the Nicobar Islands, a pregnant woman is taken into the gardens in order to impart the blessing of fertility to the plants. In Uganda, parents of twins are supposed to fertilize the plantains. The Baganda of Central Africa believes so strongly in the intimate relation between the intercourse of the sexes and fertility of the ground that among them a barren wife is generally sent away because she is supposed to prevent her husband's garden from bearing fruit. On the contrary, a couple who have given proof of extraordinary fertility by becoming the parents of twins are believed by the Baganda to be endowed with a corresponding power of increasing the fruitfulness of the plantain trees which furnish them with their staple food. Some little time after the birth of the twins, a ceremony is performed, the object of which clearly is to transmit the reproductive virtue of the parents to the plantains. The mother lies down on her back in the thick grass near the house and places a flower of the plantain between her legs. Then her husband comes and knocks the flower away with his genital member. 
Further, the parents go through the country, performing dances in the gardens of favoured friends, apparently for the purpose of causing the plantain trees to bear fruit more abundantly. The same belief in the fertilising power of such parents probably explains why in Uganda the father of twins is involuable and may go into anybody's garden and take the produce at will. To distinguish him from the common herd, his hair is cut in a special way, and he wears little bells at his ankles, which tinkle as he walks. His sacred character is further manifested by a rule, which he must observe after the round of visits has been paid, and the dances in the gardens are over. He has to remain at home until the next time that the army goes forth to battle, and in the interval he may neither dress his hair nor cut his fingernails. When war is being proclaimed, his whole body is shaved and his nails cut. The clipped hair and nails he ties up in a ball, which he takes with him to the war, along with the bark cloth which he wore at the dances. When he has killed a foe, he crams the ball into the dead man's mouth, ties the bark cloth round his neck, and leaves them there on the battlefield. Apparently the ceremony is intended to rid him of the peculiar sanctity or state of taboo which he contracted by the birth of twins, and to facilitate his return to ordinary life. For to the mind of the savage, as we shall see later on, the sanctity has its dangers and inconveniences, and the sacred man may often be glad to divest himself of it by stripping himself of those separate parts of his person, the hair and nails, to which the holy contagion is apt to cling. Relics of similar customs in Europe in various parts of Europe, customs have prevailed both at spring and harvest, which are clearly based on the same crude notion that the relation of the human sexes to each other can be so used as to weaken the growth of plants. For example, in Ukraine, on St. George's Day, the 23rd of April, the priest in his robes, attended by his acolytes, goes out to the fields of the village, where the crops are beginning to show green above the ground, and blesses them. After that, the young married people lie down in couples on the sown fields and roll several times over on them and the belief that this will promote the growth of the crops. In some parts of Russia, the priest himself is rolled by women over the sprouting crop, and that, without regard to the mud and holes which he may encounter in his beneficial progress. If the shepherd resists or remonstrates his flock murmurs, Little father, you do not really wish us well. You do not wish us to have corn, although you do wish to live on our corn. In England, it seems to have been customary for young couples to roll down a slope together on May Day. On Greenwich Hill, the custom was practised at Easter and Whitsuntide, as it was still lately practised near Dublin on Whit Monday. Relics of a custom of promoting the growth of the crops by the intercourse of the sexes. When we consider how closely these seasons, especially May Day and Whitsuntide, are associated with the ceremonies for the revival of plant life in spring, we shall scarcely doubt that the custom of rolling in couples at such times had originally the same significance which it still has in Russia. And when further we compare this particular custom with the practice of representing the vernal powers of vegetation by a bridal pair, and remember the traditions which even in our own country attach to May Day, we shall probably do no injustice to our forefathers if we conclude that they once celebrated the return of spring with grosser rites, of which the customs I refer to are only a stunned survival. Indeed, these rites, in their grossest form, are said to be still observed in various parts of Holland and Whitsuntide. In some parts of Germany at harvest, the men and women who have reaped the corn roll together on the field. This again is probably a mitigation of an older and ruder custom designed to impart fertility to the fields by methods like those resorted to in the Pipilos of Central America long ago and by the cultivators of rice and java at the present time. 
in Poso, when the rice crop is not thriving, the farmer's wife sets bowls of rice and betel in various parts of the field. Then she lies down, draws her petticoat over her head, and pretends to fall asleep. But one of her children thereupon mimics the crowing of a cock, and at the sound she gets up, because a new day is dawned. The intention of this ceremony, which the knaves could not or would not explain to the Dutch missionary who reports it, may be to place the woman at the disposal of the god of the field. We are expressly told that there is a special god of the rice fields named Poiwei, and that the ceremony in question is performed in his honour. Continence practice in order to make the crops grow. To the student who cares to track the devious course of the human mind in its gropings after truth, it is of some interest to observe that the same theoretical belief in the sympathetic influence of the sexes on vegetation, which has led some people to indulge their passions as a measure of fertilizing the earth, has led others to seek the same end by directly opposite means. From the moment that they sowed the maize to the time when they reaped it, the Indians of Nicaragua lived chastely, keeping apart from their wives and sleeping in a separate place. They ate no salt and drank neither cocoa nor chica, the fermented liquor made from maize. In short, the season was for them, as the Spanish historians observes, a time of abstinence. To this day, some of the Indian tribes of Central America practice continence, for the purpose of thereby promoting the growth of the crops. Thus we are told that before sowing the maize, the Kachchi Indians slept apart from their wives and, and ate no flesh for five days, while among the Languirinos and Cajaborinos, the period of abstinence from these carnal pleasures extends to thirteen days. So amongst some of the Germans of Transylvania, it is as a rule that no man may sleep with his wife during the whole of the time that he is engaged in sowing his fields. The same rules observed at Kalotazeg in Hungary. The people think that if the custom were not observed, the corn will be mildewed. Similarly, a central Australian headman of the Kaitish tribe strictly abstains from martial relations with his wife all the time that he is performing magical ceremonies to make the grass grow for he believes that a breach of this rule would prevent the grass seed from sprouting properly. In some of the Melanesian islands, when the yam vines are being trained, the men sleep near the gardens and never approach their wives. Should they enter the garden after breaking this rule of continence, the fruits of the garden would be spoiled. Continence practice in order to make the crops grow. In the Motu tribe of New Guinea, when rain has fallen plentifully, and there is a promise of a good crop of bananas, one of the chief men becomes holy or taboo, and must live apart from his wife and eat only certain kinds of food. He bids the young men beat the drum and dance, in order that by doing so there may be a large harvest. If the dancing is not given, there will be an end to the good growth, but if it is continued, all will go well. People come in from other villages to assist, and will dance all night. In the Mekio district of British New Guinea, when a taboo has been put on the coconuts and areca nuts to promote their growth, some fourteen or fifteen men act as watchmen to enforce the taboo. Every evening they go round the village armed with clubs and wearing masks, or so covered with leaves that nobody would know them. All the time they are in office, they may not chew betel nor drink coconut water, lest the areca nuts, which are eaten with betel, and the coconuts should fail. Moreover, they may not live with their wives. Indeed, they may not even look at their woman, and if they pass one, they must keep their eyes on the ground. Among the Kabuis of Manipur, before the rice is sown and when it is reaped, the strictest chastity has to be observed, especially by the religious head of the village, 
who besides always taking the omens on behalf of the villagers is the first to sow and the first to reap some of the tribes of assam believe that so long as their crops remain ungarnered the slightest incontinence might ruin all in the incense growing region of arabia in antiquity there were three families charged with the special care of the incense trees they were called sacred and at the time when they cut the trees or gathered the incense they were forbidden to pollute themselves with women or with the contact of the dead the observance of these rules of ceremonial purity was believed to increase the supply of incense apparently the incense itself was deemed holy from being gathered it was deposited in the sanctuary of the sun where the merchants inspected and purchased it with ancient greek husbandmen it was a maxim that olives should always be planted and gathered by pure boys and virgins the uncommon fruitfulness of the olive trees of anazerbas in cilicia was attributed to their being tended by young innocent children in default of such workers the olive gatherer had to swear that he had been faithful to his own wife for his fidelity was believed to ensure an abundant crop of fruit the following year the lizard love supposed to blight the fruits of the earth again the sympathetic relation supposed to exist between the commerce of the sexes and the fertility of the earth manifests itself in the belief that illicit love tends directly or indirectly to mar that fertility and to blight the crops such a belief prevails for example among the karens of burma they imagine adultery or fornication has a powerful influence to injure the harvest hence if the crops have been bad for a year or two and no rain falls the villagers set down the turf to secret sins of this kind and say that the god of heaven and earth is angry with them on that account and they all unite in making an offering to appease him further whenever adultery or fornication is detected the elders decide that the sinners must buy a hog and kill it when the woman takes one foot of the hog and the man takes another and they scrape out furrows in the ground of each foot and fill the furrows with the blood of the hog next they scratch the ground with their hands and pray god of heaven and earth god of the mountains and hills for i destroy the productiveness of the country do not be angry with me do not hate me but have mercy on me and compassion on me now i repair the mountains now i heal the hills and the streams and the lands may there be no failure of crops may there be no unsuccessful labours or unfortunate efforts in my country let them be dissipated to the foot of the horizon make thy paddy fruitful thy rice abundant make the vegetables to flourish if we cultivate but little still grant that we may obtain a little after each has prayed thus they return to the house and say they have repaired the earth the badders of sumatra think that if an unmarried woman is big with child it is necessary to give her in marriage at once even to a man of lower rank for otherwise the people will be infested by tigers and the crops in the field will not yield an abundant return the cry of incest in their opinion would blast the whole harvest if the wrong were not speedily repaired epidemics and other calamities that affect the whole people are almost always traced by them to incest by which is to be understood any marriage that conflicts with their customs Dyak belief that lewdness may cause bad weather and spoil the crops similar views are held by various tribes of borneo thus when the rain pours down steadily day after day and week after week and the crops are rotting in the fields the Dyaks of borneo come to the conclusion that someone has been indulging in fleshy lusts so the elders lay their heads together and educate on all cases of incest and bigamy and purify the earth with the blood of pigs which appears to possess in a high degree the value property of atoning for moral guilt 
For three days the villages are tabooed and all labour discontinued. The inhabitants remain at home and no strangers are admitted. Not long ago the offenders whose lewdness had thus brought the whole country into danger would have been punished with death or at least slavery. A Dayak may not marry his first cousin unless he first performs a special ceremony called Bergabut to avert evil consequences from the land. The couple repair to the waterside, fill a small pitcher with their personal ornaments, and sink it in the river. Or instead of a jar, they fling a chopper and a plate into the water. A pig is then sacrificed on the bank, and its carcass, drained of blood, is thrown in after the jar. Next, the pair are pushed into the water by their friends in order to bathe together. Lastly, a joint of bamboo is filled with pig's blood, and the couple perambulate the country and the villages round about, sprinkling the blood on the ground. After that, they are free to marry. This is done, we are told, for the sake of the whole country, in order that the rice may not be blasted. Gayan belief that adultery or fornication spoils the harvest. The Bahoas or Kayans, a tribe in the interior of Borneo, believe that adultery is punished by the spirits who visit the whole tribe with failure of the crops and other misfortunes. Hence, in order to avert these calamities from the innocent members of the tribe, the two culprits with all their possessions are put in a quarantine on a gravel bank in the middle of the river. Then, in order thoroughly to disinfect them, pigs and fowls are killed and with the blood priestess smear the property of their guilty bear. Finally, the two are set on a raft, with sixteen eggs, and allowed to drift down the stream. They may save themselves by swimming ashore, but this is perhaps a mitigation of an older sentence of death by drowning. Young people shower long grass stalks, which stand for spears at the shamefaced and dripping cobble. The blue Yukayans of the same region similarly imagine that an intrigue between an unmarried pair is punished by the spirits with failure of the harvest, of the fishing, and of the hunt. Hence, and leek ones have to appease the wrath of the spirits by sacrificing a pig and some rice. Incest and seduction, supposed to be a cause of bad weather and failure of crops in Celebes. Among the Makassars and Bujanese of southern Celebes, incest is a capital crime. In the Bujanese language, this misdeed is called Sapatana, which literally translated signifies that the ground Tanum has been polluted with the blood of such a person must above all be shunned. Sapa. Where we remember how afraid of evil spirits and native is in passing even a spot that has been stained with innocent blood, we can easily conceive what passes in his mind at the thought of the blood of one who has been guilty of such a crime. When the rivers dry up and the supply of fish runs short, when the harvest and the produce of the gardens miscarry, when edible fruits fail, and especially when sickness is rife among the cattle and horses, as well as when civil strife breaks out and the country suffers from any other widespread calamity, the native generally thinks that earth and air have been sullied with the blood of persons who have committed incest. The blood of such people should naturally not be shed. Hence the punishment usually inflicted on them is that of drowning. They are tied up in a sack and thrown into the sea, yet they get with them on their journey to eternity the necessary provisions, consisting of a bag of rice, salt, dried fish, coconuts and so on, not forgetting three quids of battle. Among the Tamori of central Salibs, a person guilty of incest is throttled. No drop of his blood may fall on the ground, for if it did, the rice would never grow again. The union of uncle and niece is regarded by these people as incest, but it can be expiated by an offering. A garment of the man and one of the woman are laid on a copper vessel. The blood of a sacrificed animal, either a goat or a fowl, is allowed to drip on the garments, and then the vessel with its contents is suffered to float down the river. Among the Talalaki, 
another tribe of central Celebes, persons who have defiled themselves with incest are shut up in a basket and drowned. No drop of their blood may be spilt on the ground, for that would hinder the earth from ever bearing fruit again. When it rains in torrents, the galleries of Almahira say that brother and sister, or father and daughter, or in short some near relations, are having illicit relations with each other, and that every human being must be informed of it. For then, only will the rain cease to descend. The superstition has repeatedly caused blood relations to be accused, rightfully or wrongfully, of incest. The people also regard other alarming natural phenomena, for instance a violent earthquake or the rubbish on volcano, as consequences of crimes of the same sort. Persons charged with such offences are brought to ternate. It is said that formerly they were often drowned in the same way, or on being hailed thither, were content to be thrown into the volcano. Breaches of sexual morality supposed to prevent ruin, and so to blight the fruits of the earth in Africa. In some parts of Africa also, it is believed that breaches of sexual morality disturb the course of nature, particularly by blighting the fruits of the earth. Thus the Negroes of Luango suppose that the intercourse of a man with an immature girl is punished by God with drought and consequent famine, until the culprits atone for their sin by dancing naked before the king and an assembly of the people, who throw hot gravel and bits of glass at the pair. For example, in the year 1898, it was discovered that a long drought was caused by the misconduct of three girls, who were with child before they had passed through what is called the paint house, that is, before they had been painted red and secluded for a time in token that they had attained to the age of puberty. The people were very angry and tried to punish or even kill the girls. Amongst the Bavelli of Luango it is believed that if a man breaks the marriage law by marrying a woman of his mother's clan, God will in like manner punish the crime by withholding the reins in their due season. Similar notions of the blighting influence of sexual crime appear to be entertained by the Nandi of British East Africa. For among them a girl, who has been gotten with child by a warrior, may never look inside of a granary for fear of spoiling the corn. Among the Basutos, likewise, while the corn is exposed to view, all defiled persons are carefully kept from it. If the aid of a man in this state is necessary for carrying home the harvest, he remains at some distance while the sacks are filled, and only approaches to place them upon the drought oxen. He withdraws as soon as the load is deposited at the dwelling, and at no pretext can he assist in pouring the corn to the baskets in which it is preserved. The nature of the defilement which thus disqualifies a man for handling the corn is not mentioned, but probably it would include unchastity. We may conjecture that it was for a similar reason that the Basogo of Central Africa used to punish severely the seduction of a virgin. If a man was convicted of such a crime, and the woman's guilt was discovered, he and she were sent at night-time to Kaluba's village, where they were tied to a tree. This tall spreading incense tree was thought to be under the protection of the spirit called Kakuna Kambuzi. Next morning the erring couple were discovered by people in the surrounding plantations who released them. They were then allowed to settle near the tree of the protecting spirit. This practice of tying the culprits to a sacred tree may have been thought to atone for their crime and so to ensure the fertility of the earth which they had imperiled. The notion, perhaps, was to deliver the criminals into the power of the offended tree spirit. If they were found alive in the morning, it was a sign that he had pardoned them. Incest of animals employed as a rain charm in Africa. 
Curiously enough, the basuga also held in great abhorrence anything like incest among domestic animals. That is to say, they greatly disapproved of intercourse between a bull calf and its mother cow, or between a bull and a cow that were known to be brother and sister. If this occurred, the bull and cow were sent by night to a fetish tree and tied there. The next morning the chief of the district appropriated the animals and turned them to his own use. Following out the same train of thought, the Torejas of central Salibs ingeniously employ the incest of animals as a range harm. For they believe that the anger of the gods at incest or bestiality manifests itself in the form of violent storms, heavy rain or long drought. Accordingly, they think that it is always in their power to enrage the gods by committing incest and so to procure rain when it is needed. However, they abstain from perpetrating the crime among themselves, first because it would be necessary to put the culprits to death, and second because the storms thus raised would be so furious they would do more harm than good. But they fancy that the incest real or simulated of animals is a lighter offence which by discomposing without exasperating the higher powers would disturb the balance of nature just enough to improve the weather. A ceremony of this sort was witnessed by a missionary. Rain was wanted and the headman of the village had to see that it fell. He took his measures accordingly. Attended by a crowd, he carried a crock and a little sow to the river. Here the animals were killed, laid side by side in an intimate embrace and wrapped tightly up in a piece of cotton. Then the headman engaged in prayer. O oh, gods above and gods below, he said, if you have pity on us and will that we eat food this year, give rain. If you will not give rain, well, we have here buried a cock and a sow in an intimate embrace, but which you meant to say, be angry at this abomination because we have committed and manifest your anger in storms. Similar notions of the blight of effect of sexual crime may be detected among the civilized races of antiquity, for example, among the Jews. These examples suffice to prove that among many savage races, breaches of the marriage laws are thought to blast the fruits of the earth through excessive rain or excessive drought. Similar notions of the disastrous effects of sexual crimes may be detected among some of the civilized races of antiquity, who seem not to have limited the supposed sterilizing influence of such offenses to the fruits of the earth but to extend it to women and cattle. Thus among the Hebrews we read how Job, passionately protesting his innocence before God, declares that he is no adulterer, for that he says, were an heinous crime, yea, it were an iniquity to be punished by the judges, for it is a fire that consumeth unto destruction, and root out all mine increase. In this passage the Hebrew word translated increase commonly means to produce of the earth. And if we give the word its usual sense here, then Job affirms adultery to be destructive of the fruits of the ground, which is just what many savages still believe. This interpretation of his words is strongly confirmed by two narratives in Genesis, where we read how Sarah, Abraham's wife, was taken into the harem by a king who did not know her to be the wife of the patriarch, and how thereafter God visited the king with his household with great plagues, especially by closing up the wombs of the king's wives, and his maidservants, so they bore no children. It was not till the king has discovered and confessed his sin that Abram had prayed God to forgive him, that the king's women again became fruitful. These narratives seem to imply that adultery, even when it is committed in ignorance, is a cause of plague and especially of sterility among women. 
Again, in Leviticus, after a long list of sexual crimes, we read, Defile not ye yourselves in any of these things, for in all these the nations are defiled, which I cast out from before you. And the land is defiled, therefore I do not visit the iniquity thereof upon it, and land vomiteth out her inhabitants. This passage appears to imply that the land itself was somehow physically tainted by sexual transgressions, so that it could no longer support the inhabitants. Blighting effect attributed to incest by the ancient Greeks and Irish. It would seem that the ancient Greeks and Romans entertained similar notions as to the wasting effect of incest. According to Sophocles, the land of Thebes suffered from blight, from pestilence, and from the sterility both of women and of cattle under the reign of Oedipus, who had unwittingly slain his father and wedded his mother, and the Delphic oracle declared that the only way to restore the prosperity of the country was to banish the sinner from it, as if his mere presence withered plants, animals, and women. No doubt the poet of his hearers set down these public calamities in great part to the guilt of parricide, which rested on Oedipus but they can hardly have failed to lay much also of the evil at the door of his incest with his mother. Again in ancient Italy, under the Emperor Claudius, a Roman noble was accused of incest with his sister. He committed suicide. His sister was banished, and the Emperor ordered that certain ancient ceremonies traditionally derived from the laws of King Severus Tullius should be performed, and that expiation should be made by the pontiffs at the sacred grove Diana, probably the famous Arician grove which has finished the starting point of our inquiry. As Diana appears to have been a goddess of fertility in general, and of the fruitfulness of women in particular, the atonement made at her sanctuary for incest may perhaps be accepted as evidence that the Romans, like other peoples, attributed to sexual immorality a tendency to blast the fruits both of the earth and of the womb. This inference is strengthened by a precept laid down by grave Roman writers that bakers, cooks, and butlers ought to be strictly chaste and continent, because it was most important that food and cups should be handled either by persons under the age of puberty, or at all events by persons who indulged very sparingly in sexual intercourse. For which reason, if a baker, a cook, or a butler broke this rule of continence, it was his bounden duty to wash in a river rather running water before he applied himself again to his professional duties. But for all such duties, the services of a boy or of a virgin were preferred. The Celts of ancient Ireland similarly believed that incest blighted the fruits of the earth. According to legend, Munster was afflicted in the third century of our era with a failure of the crops and other misfortunes. When the nobles inquired into the matter, they were told these calamities were the result of an incest which the king had committed with his sister. In order to put an end to the evil, they demanded of the king his two sons, the fruit of his unholy union, that they might consume them with fire and cast their ashes into the running stream. However, one of the sons, Cork by name, is said to have been purged of his inherited taint by being sent out of Ireland to an island, where a druid purified him every morning by putting him on the back of a white cow with red ears and pouring water over him till one day the cow jumped into the sea and became a rock no doubt taking the sin of Cork's father away with her. After that, the boy was brought back to Erin. Belief in the blighting effects of incest may have helped to institute the forbidden degrees. Thus the belief that incest or sexual crime, in general, has power to blast the fruits of the earth is widespread and probably goes back to a very remote antiquity and may long have preceded the rise of agriculture. 
we may conjecture that in its origin the belief was magical rather than religious in other words that the blood was at first supposed to be a direct consequence of the act itself rather than a punishment inflicted on the criminal by gods or spirits conceived as an unnatural union of the sexes incest might be thought to subvert the regular processes of reproduction and so to prevent the earth from yielding its fruits and to hinder animals and men from propagating their kinds at a later time the anger of spiritual beings would naturally be invoked in order to give religious sanction to the old taboo if this was so it is possible that something of the horror which incest has excited amongst most though by no means all races of men sprang from this ancient superstition has been transmitted as an instinct in many nations long after the imaginary ground of it had been forgotten certainly a course of conduct which was supposed to endanger or destroy the general supply of food and therefore to strike a blow at the very life of the whole people could not but present itself to the savage imagination as a crime of the blackest dye fought with the most fatal consequences to the public weal how far such a superstition may in the beginning have operated to prevent the union of new kin in other words to institute the system of prohibited degrees which still prevails among the great majority of mankind both savage and civilized is a question which deserves to be considered by the historians of marriage explanation of the seeming contradiction in the foregoing customs if we ask why it is that similar beliefs should logically lead among different peoples to such opposite modes of conduct as strict chastity and more or less open debauchery the reason as it presents itself to the primitive mind is perhaps not very far to seek if rude man identifies himself in a manner with nature if he fails to distinguish the impulses and processes in himself on the methods which nature adopts to ensure the reproduction of plants and animals he may leap to one of two conclusions either he may infer that by yielding to his appetites he will thereby assist in the multiplication of plants and animals or he may imagine that the vigour which he refuses to expend in reproducing his own kind will form as it were a store of energy whereby other creatures whether vegetable or animal will somehow benefit in propagating their species thus from the same crude philosophy the same primitive notions of nature and life the savage may derive by different channels a rule either of profligacy or asceticism indirect benefit of some of these superstitious customs to readers bred in a religion which is saturated with the ascetic idealism of the east the explanation which i have given of the rule of continence observed under certain circumstances by rude or savage peoples may seem far-fetched and improbable the ascetic view of chastity not understood by the savage they may think that moral purity which is so intimately associated in their minds with the observance of such a rule furnishes a sufficient explanation of it they may hold with milton that chastity in itself is a noble virtue and that the restraint which it imposes on one of the strongest impulses of our animal nature marks out those who can submit to it as men raised above the common herd and therefore worthy to receive the seal of the divine approbation however natural this mode of thought may seem to us it is utterly foreign and indeed incomprehensible to the savage if he resists on occasion the sexual instinct is from no high idealism no ethereal aspiration after moral purity but for the sake of some ulterior yet perfectly definite and concrete object to gain which he is prepared to sacrifice the immediate gratification of his senses that is or may be so the examples i have cited are aptly sufficient to prove 
they show that where the instinct of self-preservation which manifests itself chiefly in the search for food conflicts or appears to conflict with the instinct which conduces to the propagation of the species the former instinct as a primary more fundamental is capable of overmastering the latter in short the savage is willing to restrain his sexual propensity for the sake of food another object for the sake of which he consents to exercise the same self-restraint is victory in war not only the warrior in the field but his friends at home will often bridle their sensual appetites from a belief that by doing so they will the more easily overcome their enemies the fallacy of such a belief or the belief that the chastity of the sower conduces to the growth of the seed is plain enough to us yet perhaps the self-restraint like these and the, the like beliefs vain and false as they are have imposed on mankind has not been without its utility in bracing and strengthening the breed for strength of character in the race as in the individual consists mainly in the power of sacrificing the present to the future of disregarding the immediate temptations of ephemeral pleasure for the more distant and lasting sources of satisfaction the more the power is exercised the higher and stronger becomes the character to the height of heroism is reached in men who renounce the pleasures of life and even life itself for the sake of keeping winning for others perhaps in distant ages the blessings of freedom and truth End of chapter 11section six of the golden bell part one the magic art of the evolution of kings volume two by james fraser this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings in the public domain for more information or volunteer please visit librivox.org recorded by leon harvey chapter twelve the sacred marriage part one diana as a goddess of fertility Dramatic marriages of gods and goddesses as a charm to promote vegetation. In the last chapter we saw that according to a widespread belief, which is not without a foundation in fact, plants reproduce their kinds through the sexual union of male and female elements, and that on the principle of homeopathic or imitative magic, this reproduction can be stimulated by the real or mock marriage of men and women, who masquerade for the time being as spirits of vegetation such magical dramas have played a great part in the popular festivals of europe and based as they are on a very crude conception of natural law it is clear that they must have been handed down from our remote antiquity we shall hardly therefore err in assuming that they date from a time when the forefathers of the civilized nations of europe were still barbarians herding their cattle and cultivating patches of corn in the clearings of the vast forests which then covered the greater part of the continent from the mediterranean to the arctic ocean but of these old spells and enchantments for the growth of leaves and blossoms of grass and flowers and fruit have lingered down to our own time in the shape of pastoral plays and popular merry-makings is it not reasonable to suppose that they survived in less attenuated form some two thousand years ago among the civilized peoples of antiquity or to put it otherwise is it not likely that in certain festivals of the ancients we may be able to detect the equivalence of a may day with sun-tide and midsummer celebrations with this difference that in those days the ceremonies had not yet dwindled into mere shows and pageants but were still religious or magical rites in which the actors consciously supported the high parts of gods and goddesses now in the first chapter of this book we found reason to believe that the priest who bore the title of king of the wood at nemi had for his mate the goddess of the grove diana herself may not he and she as king and queen of the wood have been serious counterparts of the merry mummers who play the king and queen of may 
the Whitsuntide Bridegroom and Bride in modern Europe, and may not their union have been clearly celebrated in the theogamy or divine marriage. Such dramatic winnings of gods and goddesses as we shall see presently were carried out as solemn religious rites in many parts of the ancient world. Hence there is no intrinsic improbability in the supposition that the sacred grove at Nemi may have been the scene of an annual ceremony of this sort. Direct evidence that it was so there is none, but analogy pleads in favour of the view, as I shall now endeavour to show. Diana, a goddess of the woodlands. Diana was essentially a goddess of the woodlands, and Ceres was the goddess of the corn, and Bacchus a god of the vine. Sanctity of holy groves in antiquity. Her sanctuaries were commonly in groves, indeed every grove was sacred to her, and she is often associated with the forest god Sylvanus in dedications. We must not forget that to the ancients the sanctity of a holy grove was very real and might not be violated with impunity. For example, in Attica there was a sanctuary of Erythesian Apollo, and it was enacted by law that any person caught in the act of cutting trees in it or carrying away timber, firewood or fallen leaves, should be punished with fifty stripes if he was a slave or with a fine of fifty drachmas if he was a freeman the culprit was denounced by the priest to the king that is to the sacred official or minister of state who bore the royal title similarly it was the duty of the sacred medit andania in messenia to scourge slaves and fine freemen who cut wood in the grove of the great goddesses in Crete it was forbidden, under pain of curses and fines, to fell timber, sow corn, and herd or fold flocks within the precinct of Dictate and Zeus. In Italy, like customs prevailed. Near Spolitium there was a sacred grove from which nothing might be taken, and in which no wood might be cut except just so much as was needed for the annual sacrifice. Any person who knowingly violated the sanctity of the grove had to expiate his offence by sacrificing ox to Jupiter, and to pay besides a fine of three hundred pence. In his treatise on farming, Cato directs that before thinning a grove, the Roman husbandman should offer a pig as an expiatory sacrifice to the god or goddess of the place, and should entreat his or her favour for himself, his children, and his household. The fratres unveils or brethren of the tilled fields were a roman college of twelve priests who performed public religious rites for the purpose of making the crops to grow and they wore wreaths of ears of corn as a badge of their office their sacrifices were offered in their grove of the goddess dia situated five miles down the tiber from rome so hallowed was this grove which is known to have included laurels and holy oaks that expiatory sacrifices of sows and lambs had to be offered when a rotten bough fell to the ground when an old tree was laid low by a storm or dragged down by a load of snow on its branches. And still more elaborate expiation had to be made with the slaughter of sows, sheep and bulls when any of the sacred trees were struck by lightning, and it was necessary to dig them up by the roots, split them, burn them, and plant others in their room. At the annual festival of the Parilia, which was intended to ensure the welfare of the flocks and herds, Roman shepherds prayed to be forgiven if they had entered a hollow grove, or sat down under a sacred tree, or lopped a holy bough in order to feed a sick sheep of the leaves. Sense of the Divinity of Woods Shared by Polite Roman Writers 
nor was this sense of the indwelling divinity of the woods confined to the simple rustics who tending their flocks in their checkered shade felt the presence of spirits in the solemn stillness of the forest heard their voices in the sough of the wind among the branches and saw their handiwork in the fresh green of spring and the fading gold of autumn the feeling was shared by the most cultivated minds in the greatest age of roman civilization pliny says that the woods were formerly temples of the deities even now simple country folk dedicate a tall tree to a god with the ritual of the olden time and we adore sacred groves and the various silence that reigns in them not less devoutly than images that gleam with gold and ivory similarly seneca writes you come upon a grove of old trees that have shot up above the common light and shut out the sight of the sky by the gloom of their matted boughs you feel there is a spirit in the place so lofty is the wood so lone the spot so wondrous the thick unbroken shade the breaking of the golden bough a rite of solemn significance not a mere peasant's bravado thus the ancients like many other people in various parts of the world were deeply impressed with the sanctity of holy groves and regarded even the cutting of a bough in them as a sacrilege which called for expiation he therefore a candidate for the priesthood diana nimai had to break a branch of a certain tree in the sacred grove before he could fight the king of the wood we may be sure that the act was a rite of solemn significance and that to treat it as a mere piece of bravado a challenge to the priest to come on and defend his domain would be to commit the commonest of all errors in dealing with the past that namely of interpreting the customs of other races and other generations by reference to modern european standards in order to understand an alien religion the first essential is to divest ourselves as well as we can of our own familiar prepossessions and to place ourselves at the point of view of those whose faith and practice we are studying to do this at all is difficult to do it completely is perhaps impossible yet the attempt must be made if the inquiry is to progress instead of returning on itself in a vicious circle diana not a mere goddess of trees but like artemis a personification of the teeming life of nature both animal and vegetable but whatever her origin may have been diana was not always a mere goddess of trees like her greek sister artemis she appears to have developed into a personification of the teeming life of nature both animal and vegetable as mistress of the greenwood she would naturally be thought to own the beasts whether wild or tame that ranged through it looking for their prey in the gloomy depths munching the fresh leaves and shoots among the boughs or cropping the herbage in the open glades and dwells a deity of the woods is naturally the patron of the beasts in the woods both game and cattle thus she might come to be the patron goddess both of hunters and herdsmen just as sylvanus was the god not only of woods but of cattle similarly in finland the wild beasts of the forest were regarded as the herds of the woodland god tapio and of his stately and beautiful wife no man might slay one of these animals without the gracious permission of the divine owners hence the hunter prayed to the sylvan deities and vowed rich offerings to them that they would drive the game across his path the cattle also seemed to have enjoyed the protection of the spirits of the woods both when they were in the stalls and while they stayed in the forest so in the belief of russian peasants the spirit less she rules both the wood and all the creatures in it the bear is to him what the dog is to man and the migrations of the squirrels the field mice and other denizens of the woods are carried out in obedience to his behests success in the chase depends on his favour and to assure himself of the spirit's help the huntsman lays an offering generally of bread and salt on the trunk of a tree in the forest 
in white russia every herdsman must present a cow to leshi in summer and in the government of archangel some herdsmen have won his favour so far that he even feeds and tends the herds for them similarly the forest god of the laps ruled over all the beasts of the forest they were viewed as his herds and good or bad luck in hunting depended on his will so too the samagitians deemed the birds and beasts of the woods sacred doubtless because they were under the protection of the sylvan god for the gayosas of Madra hunt deer the wild goats or wild pigs with hounds in the woods they deem it necessary to obtain the leave of the unseen lord of the forest this is done according to a prescribed form by a man who has special skill in woodcraft he lays down a quid of betel before a stake which is cut in a particular way to represent the lord of the wood having done so he prays to the spirit to signify his consent or refusal the crowning of hunting dogs on diana's day was probably a purificatory ceremony to cleanse them from the guilt of having killed game the creatures of the goddess we have seen that at diana's festival it was customary to crown hunting dogs to leave wild beasts in peace and to perform a purificatory ceremony for the benefit of young people some light is thrown on the meaning of these customs by a passage in arian's treatise on hunting it tells us that a good hound is a boon conferred by one of the gods upon the huntsman who ought to testify his gratitude by sacrificing to the huntress artemis further arian goes on to say it is right that after a successful chase a man should sacrifice and dedicate the first fruits of his bag to the goddess in order to purify both the hounds and the hunters in accordance with old custom and usage he tells us that the Celts were wont to form a treasury for the goddess Artemis, into which they paid a fine of two or bulls for every hare they killed, a drachm for every fox, and four drachms for every bro. The crowning of hunting dogs as a form of purification. Once a year, on the birthday of Artemis, they opened the treasury, and with the accumulated fines purchased a sacrificial victim, it might be a sheep, a goat, or a calf. Having slain the animal and offered her share to the hunter Sotemus, they feasted both men and dogs, and they crowned the dogs on that day in order to signify, says Arian, that the festival was for their benefit. The Celts to whom Arian, a native of Bithynia, here refers were probably the Galetians of Asia Minor, but doubtless the custom he describes was imported by these barbarians, among with their native tongue and the worship of the oak, from their old home in central and northern Europe. The Celtic divinity whom Arian identifies with Artemis may well have been really akin both to her and to the Italian Diana. We know from other sources that the Celts revered a woodland goddess of this type. Thus, Arduina, the goddess of the forest of the Ardennes, was represented, like Artemis Diana, with a bow and quiver. In any case, the custom described by Arian is good evidence of a belief that the wild beasts belong to the goddess of the wilds, who must be compensated for their destruction and taken with what he says of the need of purifying the hounds after a successful chase the celtic practice of crowning them at the annual festival of artemis may have been meant to purge them of the stain they had contracted by killing the creatures of the goddess the same explanation would naturally apply to the same custom observed by the italians at the festival of diana cattle crown to protect them from witchcraft but why it may be asked should crowns of garlands cleanse dogs from the taint of bloodshed the answer to this question is indicated by the reason which the south slavonian peasant assigns for crowning the horns of his cows with wreaths of flowers on st george's day the twenty third of april 
He does it in order to guard the cattle against witchcraft. Cows that have no crowns are regarded as given over to the witches. In the evening, the chaplets are fastened to the door of the cattle stall and remain there throughout the year. A herdsman who fails to crown his beast is scolded and sometimes beaten by his master. The German and French custom of crowning cattle on Midsummer Day probably springs from the same motive. For the Midsummer Eve, just as on Walpurgis night, witches are very busy holding their nocturnal assemblies and trying to steal the milk and butter from the cows. To guard against them, some people at this season lay besoms crosswise before the doors of the stalls. Others make fast the doors and stop up the chinks, lest the witches should creep through them on their return from the revels. In Swabia, all the church bells used to be kept ringing from nine at night till break of day on midsummer morning to drive away the infernal rout from honest folks' houses. South Slavonian peasants are up betimes that morning, gather the dew from the grass, and wash the cows with it. That saves their milk from the hellish charms of the witches. Similarly, the crowning of hunting dogs may have been meant to protect them against the angry spirits of the beasts they had killed. Now when we observe that garlands of flowers, like hawthorn and other green boughs, avail to ward off the unseen powers of mischief, we may conjecture that the practice of crowning dogs at the festival of the huntress goddess was intended to preserve the hounds from the angry and dangerous spirits of the wild beasts which they had killed in the course of the year. Fantastical as this explanation may sound to us, it is perfectly in accordance with the ideas of the savage, who, as we shall see later on, resorts to a multitude of curious expedients for disarming the wrath of the animals whose life he has been obliged to take. Thus conceived, the custom in question might still be termed a purification, but its original purpose, like that of many other purificatory rites, would not be so much to cleanse moral guilt as to raise a physical barrier against the assaults of malignant and mischievous spirits. Conceived as the moon, Diana was also a goddess of crops and of childbirth. But Diana was not merely a patroness of wild beasts, a mistress of woods and hills, of lonely glades and sounding rivers. Conceived as the moon, especially, it would seem, as a yellow harvest moon, she filled the farmer's grange with godly fruits and heard the prayers of women in travail. In her sacred grove in Nemi, as we have seen, she was especially worshipped as a goddess of childbirth, who bestowed offspring on men and women. Thus Diana, like the Greek Artemis with whom she was constantly identified, may be described as a goddess of nature in general, and of fertility in particular. We need not wonder, therefore, that in her sanctuary on the Aventine she was represented by an image copied from the many-breasted idol of the Ephesian Artemis, with all its crowded emblems of exuberant fecundity. Hence, too, we can understand why an ancient Roman law attributed King Tullius Hostilius prescribed that, when incest had been committed, an expiatory sacrifice should be offered by the pontiffs in the grove of Diana. For we know that the crime of incest is commonly supposed to cause a dearth. Hence, it would be meet that the atonement for the offence should be made to the goddess of fertility. As a goddess of fertility, Diana had herself to be fertile, and for that purpose needed a male partner. Now on the principle that the goddess of fertility must herself be fertile, it behoved Diana to have a male partner. Her mate, if the testimony of service may be trusted, was at Verbius, who had his representative, or perhaps rather his embodiment, in the king of the wood Nimai. The aim of their union would be to promote the fruitfulness of the earth, of animals and of mankind, and it might naturally be thought that this object would be more surely attained if the sacred nuptials were celebrated every year. 
the parts of the divine bride and bridegroom being played either by their images or by living persons no ancient writer mentions that this was done in the grove at nimai but our knowledge of the Arisian ritual is so scanty that the want of information on this head can hardly count as a fatal objection to the theory that theory in the absence of direct evidence must necessarily be based on the analogy of similar customs practised elsewhere some modern examples of such customs more or less degenerate were described in the last chapter here we shall consider their ancient counterparts End of section 6When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.